This is Jocko Podcast number 115 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. War is different for everyone who experiences it. On one end of the spectrum, there are some people who deploy to a safe area and protected by concrete and steel and barbed wire and their job, which is definitely a important part of the machine, but it just doesn't require them to be put into direct combat. And then with a little luck because of that situation, they can easily complete a wartime deployment with little or no contact with the enemy whatsoever. But they did their part. And we are thankful for that. On the other end of the spectrum, there are some people that end up in anything but a safe area. They end up in the belly of the beast. They are called on to do more than is required and much more than could be expected. And that situation also creates a spectrum. Some men find it to be too much. And instincts of self-preservation take over and they go into survival mode and they cower and they hide and they give up and they wait for the inevitable. but others do what they can. They try to do their duty. They put one foot in front of the other and they reload their weapon and they try to keep firing. And that's the middle of the spectrum. And then at the far end of the spectrum, there are those men that step up and go forward across the threshold, really across the threshold of life, and they go into the fire and into the flame and toward the unknown and toward death, not to save themselves, but they disregard their own safety and their own life to save their friends, their brothers and their comrades in arms. And then beyond even that, almost off the spectrum, there are those men that take that step across the threshold of life and death over and over and over again, not because they were ordered to, not for a medal, not because of some manufactured set of ideals, but simply because that is who they are. And I'm honored to have one of those men here with me today. A son a father, an American, a United States Marine, 
a man by the name of Mr. Dakota Meyer. Dakota, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for coming on. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm telling you, I'm honored. I'm honored. All right. As we normally do, let's start from where you started. Tell us a little bit about about Columbia, Kentucky. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's a, it's a small town. You know, I grew up in Columbia, Kentucky. Um, you know, I grew up in the first half of my life with my mother and uh, ended up going and living with my father. And, um, you know, I didn't didn't come from money, didn't come from anything nice, you know. I ended up living with my father. I'm adopted on my father's side. And uh, you grew up on a farm. Um, you know, it's just... Just, uh, just um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a simple guy. It's a simple, it's a simple way of life. You know what I mean? And that's that's just how we grew up. We, you know, my dad, you know, he always instilled in me. And, you know, my, I have to give you know so much credit to my father and my grandfather. I mean, I my, you know, I mean, they just they instilled so much in me of what's right and what mattered. You know. You know, uh, we're talking a lot of your childhood was, and and I wrote down these notes: farm work, football. And females. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, that. I I told you I'm simple. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. that, you know, there's not much else and, in Columbia, Kentucky, though. <laughs> and uh, you, you know, you, you wrote you you wrote a book. The book is called Into the Fire, and that's where I'm getting some of my information from. And and I would say that in the early descriptions, the way you describe yourself, yeah. not exactly Mister Sensitive, is is what we were dealing with back then. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. Um, you know, I was, no, I wasn't sensitive. I was, um, I was just a hard headed kid, you know, um, set in my ways. I, I, you know, my dad just instilled it in me. My dad instilled, I mean, you know, my dad is a man who doesn't, you know, he doesn't care the social status. He's not a, I, I, you know, he, you know, and, and I watch it from him and he's just a hard, hard, hard guy. You know what I mean? And so there's not living in a house of two men, right. You know, me, just my dad. Yeah. It, it, there's not very, you know, there's not very mean feelings. There wasn't, there wasn't a real nourishment to your sensitive <laughs> there, side. There was, a, there was not much nourishment. Yeah, he was. There's one part in there talking about you're in a football game and you jack up your elbow yeah. real bad, and so the coach got you in the locker room or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I was, uh, I was sitting in the locker room, and I, I mean, I, I had carried the ball probably 18, 19 times the first half, and I go in there and my elbows are like just jacked, right? I mean, you know, just get, we're just getting pounded, and. um I remember sitting in there and the coach like, hey, don't come out next half, right? You know, you just look, you know, because it was a JV game. And he's like, you know, don't come out next half. And I'm going to tell you something. My dad seen that I didn't come off when we were warming up for second half. And, I mean, he came in there and that, that, was, not, that was not acceptable. But one thing my dad taught me is you start it, you finish it. Check, check. Now, what happened to that football career? Would you get you get some, you did get some like legitimate injuries, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I got I you know I banged my knee up real bad uh, all my sophomore year between my sophomore and junior year. Never really recovered from it, you know. Um, and so, I, I mean, I could have went and played somewhere. Like, I'm, I'm not gonna look, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you I'd had full scholarships or anything, mm. but I could have I could have walked on somewhere, you know, probably played outside linebacker or you know a strong safety, but. Um, you know, I just, I was going to go play football and I had planned on that. I'd been through the clearinghouse. I mean, I'd done everything I needed to do to go and, and you know, my senior year and I just, and I ended up going the Marine Corps route. Now, I've, I've talked a few times down here about 
the effectiveness of the Marine Corps recruiting program, which yeah. they they have like the best recruiting numbers, but they spend the least on recruiting of of any of the military service branches. And it sounds like you got rolled right into that. I did. They got me. They got me. Let me tell you something. They uh, they got me. You know. But 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 I but I think. Look, I. I you know the product's the product with them, right? Like you know, it, you know, you're either you're either going to be a marine or you're not going to be a marine, right? Like you you either have it in you or you don't. Like it's not, you know, they just they just know how to talk to their own, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what they're so good at is is that they know how they know what would have fired them up, and so they say the same thing that would have fired them up. And and if you bite on it, then you're the type of person who needs to be a marine. If you don't, they don't want you anyway. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. And this is 2006, 2006. Right? 2006, so, yeah. and again, this is something I have to, always have to remind myself, and I'll remind everyone else while I'm at it, is, you know, when I joined the, the Navy in 1990, it, there was no war going on, right? Yeah. There was no war going on. It was just, you know, peacetime. And you're joining in 2006. We're, we're at war in two different countries. Yeah. And 2006, things are not going well. They're... they're a little quiet in Afghanistan at that time, but Iraq is full bore. I mean, that's yes. when I was in Ramadi, and it was it was a real hard fighting was taking place in Al Anbar province. The rest of Iraq was pretty bad. So you know, for you, you know you're going, and you know you're going to go to combat. I mean, that's just like kind of a given. Yeah, I mean, I um, I don't know that I ever really understood that though until I was in. You know what I mean? I think that uh, I don't think it ever really hit me. Um, I, I never really, I didn't really join. I can't sit here and give you some moto story that I joined to go, you know, to avenge 9-11, right? You want to hear something that's jacked up? Yeah. Is I joined in 1990 and I had the opposite viewpoint, which is I didn't <laughs> know there was no war going on. I was 100 <laughs> sure I was going to war. I was like, oh, yeah. it's on. I'm going, the SEALs got to be doing things all over the world. Okay? <laughs> yeah. They're doing stuff we don't even hear about. That's what my attitude yeah. was. And here you were staring at the war in two yeah. different, two different zones. And you're like, I don't know if it'll really happen. Well, well you know, cause, cause it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I did, I, I know it sounds dumb, but I mean, like, I, I, you know, by that time, we're five years past it. Yeah. And people had already got used to it, right? It was no longer like, oh, shit, right? Yeah. And, you know, in, in like the population, you know, in the just, you know, the average civilian, right? Yeah. It wasn't, and, yeah. you know, because they've been doing it for, what, five years? Yeah. And um, so, you know, I didn't really think about it. And I, you know, I I'd honestly, and, and, you know, I joined, I, you know, I wanted to go infantry. I wanted to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really, I don't think it ever really hit me until I got into boot camp, you know, and then I, I really started understanding what. And when you were going boot through boot camp at that time, basically every drill instructor must've been coming back from the battlefield. All of them. Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, uh, everybody, especially, uh, especially in, uh, a school of infantry. Oh, okay. They'd all, all every, of every one of them had been they in the They were in Fallujah. Yes. They were in, yeah. I mean, every one of them been in the shit. Yeah. yeah. You know, even my recruiter, my recruiter had just got back from Fallujah. Dang. Yeah, and he'd been in the shit. Yeah, dang. Yeah, so with that, I'm going to take it to the book right now because, you know, I think I was never in the Marine Corps. I'm, I'm pretty sad about that sometimes. But I have, like, read so much about the Marine Corps over my life and hung around with so many Marines and worked with the Marines so much. So whenever I get to Marine Corps boot camp, it like strikes a romantic side yeah. of me that just <laughs> that just that just wants to at least get a little taste. And and you did it really fast, which is great. But here here it is and it's just like exactly what we're going to the book. Again, this book is Into the Fire by Dakota Meyer. And here we go. So it began. Close haircuts to strip away your old identity 
exercises to prove you're not half as strong as you figured, simple tasks to show you that you're mentally weak, drill instructors who mock your attempts to look tough. It's right out of the movies, but it never stops. Yeah. And there you go. You know what's coming. How many times did you watch Full Metal Jacket before you went in? A ton. Y- yeah. I mean. A ton. You know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Does that even help? Uh, no. It's it, too still. It, it, no. You, you could. I mean, you, you know, I, I, like during boot camp, it was the hardest thing I'd ever been through. Mm-hmm. But when I look at everything I did in the Marine Corps, it was the easiest yeah. thing. Yeah. That's the same thing with buds. So first of all, when I went through buds, I didn't know anything about buds. No one knew anything about buds. It was 1990 when I joined the Navy, didn't know anything about it. And and so I always think that the guys that are coming in now, you can basically watch the entire bud. You can watch the whole thing. You know what? It, they, they, the students eventually captured the schedules. Yeah. And so they'd actually know what's coming. And you know, you know how many people it keeps from quitting? None. It's still the same attrition. <laughs> still, yeah. Like, okay, so it's going to suck really bad. And, yeah. and now you know it. You didn't know it before. Yeah. You even know when it's going to end. <laughs> and you, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 All right, uh, back to the book. The second month is the turnaround when they build you back up. Sergeant Brady made me a squad leader, meaning he yelled at me for the mistakes of the other 10 recruits. That was all right. He had his job. I had mine. You bust it through. You get to graduation day, which was obviously awesome. And then it's I spent the next two months at SOI School of Infantry. Only 15% of the Marine Corps and the Army are in the infantry. In today's military, there are more combat pilots than infantry squad leaders. Dang. Yeah. Ah, man. That's crazy. 15% of the Marine Corps and the Army are infantry troops for the ground. That's yeah. that's a interesting figure. In Vietnam, and I, I was talking about this with Leif and with actually the whole Echelon Front team the other day. I'd heard this somewhere. I heard it from Hackworth that in Vietnam, the height of the Vietnam War, there was a little over 500,000 troops on the ground and it was only 10% of those troops that were you know infantry units that were on the ground in combat yeah you, you know what I find so interesting about that fact and that stat when I looked at it you know like I, I didn't understand it obviously when I was in but you know what I look at it is is to understand like how much it truly you know as, as the warfighter mm-hmm. you know I think we take for granted so many times of what it really takes for us to be able to do our job effectively I mean you yeah. take it, you I mean it takes you know 85% of the organization just to support that yep. 15% to put you yes face to face with the enemy yes. there's got to be another yeah I mean you look it's at eight, 10 to 1 15 to 1 or something is. like that it's crazy 10 to 1 that's got to put you up there yeah but that's what works and that's well here we go breaking down uh, breaking down a little bit of what the Marine Corps is like a Marine squad is comprised of three four-man fire teams everything you do as a rifleman revolves around that four-man team one man carries a weapon more powerful than those of the others but that's a minor point in the field you don't do anything without those three other guys you don't shit sleep eat or move without the other three knowing about it yeah a Marine squad with those three fire teams is like a boxer with three arms. One arm jabs with bursts of fire to keep the opponent off balance while the other arm loops around with a left hook with a third arm ready to follow up wherever there's an opening. If one arm is wounded, the other two can keep fighting. Fire to pin down the enemy, maneuver to finish him off. Fire, maneuver, fire, maneuver, fire, maneuver. And I always have to point this out. Extreme ownership, but you know, this is a cover move. This is what I, I always talk about, the fundamental. This, that's the fundamental gunfighting tactic. Yes. Fire and maneuver. I always called it cover and move. So you get done with SOI, and you head out to the 3rd Marine Regiment in Hawaii. Yeah. 
So how was that when you're checking in? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we pulled in, and uh, as soon as we pulled the bus in, the uh, seniors, uh, you know, they're all, they had all just got back from uh, Haditha, the triad, Ooh. and uh, had a hard deployment. A hard, like, yeah, and yeah, they, yeah. Got, they got the shit kicked out of them. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, so we pull in, and, they, you know, there's no empathy there. And so we pull in, and uh, they're throwing beer bottles off the deck, and they are all hammered. It's in the middle of the night, and... Um, you know, so it's like, welcome, <laughs> you know, but it was awesome. You know, it, it, I was honored to be out there. And then how long did it take for the sniper billet to open up and for you to get that? Yeah. So I, it was, uh, I think it was like around, uh, February. Uh, so I, I got there in, uh, October. So September, October. No, so I got there in October, November. So November timeframe, I think I got to Hawaii, October, November timeframe. And then I, it opened in. January, February time frame. Is it hard to get a sniper? Isn't it hard to get a sniper build? Did you get lucky? Yeah. Being no, a new guy getting a sniper build? Yeah, so I did. So I was actually the youngest sniper in the Marine Corps in 2007. Um, <laughs> so what happened was, is I had ran the indoc. So you have to run an indoc to be part of the platoon. So you come in and then like you, you're on probation. So you run a huge indoc, you come in, you go on probation, and then you start... Um, you know, usually you were going deployment, and then after deployment you go to school. Well, they had a couple school slots open up, and uh, Score. and they basically gave me the option of you can either go home on pre-deployment leave because we were heading to Iraq. You can either go home pre-deployment leave, or you can go to sniper school. How old were you? I was uh, 18. How how many milliseconds did it take you to make that decision? Oh yeah, I said uh, I said I've been with my family for 18 years. I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm all good. Oh man, that's awesome. And then Marine Corps sniper school. Uh, that's a that's a hardcore school. Yeah, and fifty percent attrition rate. Yeah, we um, had seals in it with us. Yeah, and and you know our early seal snipers, uh, you know, and I don't know the full. I'll bring a sniper on here someday that knows the whole history of the seal sniper program. But it's deeply rooted in yeah. the Marine Corps sniper program. Deeply rooted, just like all of our training is rooted in the Marine Corps scouts and raiders. There's a lot of crossover in those early days, but Marine, Mar- the Marine Corps sniper program. Now everyone's going to think that's a civilian's going to think like, oh, you're sitting on a gun shooting, but but that's not really yeah, the hardest part, is it? That's like five percent of the yeah. job. Like it's like the it's, I would say I would say it's less than that. You know, it, it you know I mean you got I mean the the communication piece of it, the mission planning, the, I mean there's so much. I mean you you literally you literally are the uh, you know the commanders, the battalion commanders, trigger finger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You guys do heavy stalking, right? Oh yeah, that's just a gut check. And how much did you weigh at this point? Uh, probably about one hundred and eighty. Okay, one hundred eighty-five. And it's um, where do you guys do your stocks? Uh, so Is we it? we're in Hawaii. So I went to Hawaii Sniper School. Okay. Um, and we we do them out in the Kahukus, out in just dripping sweat. Oh, laying it's in terrible. the la- crawling. Stalking is terrible. Crawling for four hours and going thirty-five meters. Yeah, I mean, just like you know, <clears throat> you, you know, you start off, you got a thousand meter lane. You know, and they they put an observer up, and they're using the best glass there is, and they're sitting on this truck, and uh, you have to you have to move up, and um, you got to get within uh, you know a certain distance, and whatever they tell you, and then you got you know you'll have to veg up, and whatever you take the shot, you can do whatever you you know just you take a shot with a blank, okay, and then they come over, and so uh, they, they put a walker on you. A walker on you. And mm-hmm. then they try to walk, you know, back and forth. They try to find you. If they can see you or anything, then, you know, you lose. Um, and then you got to take a second shot while they're, you know, because that walker gets within the vicinity of you. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's like 10 or 20 meters. And then you take a second shot. And if they see anything, 
then you you know you you you, you fail too. So it's <clears throat> you know yeah. And What's a walker? So basically, they bring a guy out who is like who you know has like a stick or something, and mm-hmm. they can see him. Mm-hmm. And then they try to say so they go okay. I think I see him here, so I need you to take left three steps and then back four steps. They try to walk him on you. Gotcha. Gotcha. This will be interesting. When they get to you, do they say sniper at your feet to the guy? Huh? So, yeah, 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 yeah. You okay. have to say it. Sniper at your feet. So that's huh. that's that's, that's, so, that's the same thing that they say in the SEAL sniper yeah, school. That's what they, they say. They get there and they go, okay, sniper at your feet. Yeah. They go, yep, you're busted. You fail. Three three steps left, two steps up, sniper at your feet. Yep. And they'll say, nope. You know what I mean? And so there's there's the crossover that shows you that that's that stuff is rooted together, and there's a guy by the name of Skinta who was one of your instructors. You were one of your instructors, right? Yeah. And here's a here's a going back to the book. Skinta told us about a sniper team in an overwatch in a half-constructed building in Ramadi in 2004. It was a warm, dull day, and after several hours, they dozed off and never awakened. Insurgents sneaked up and shot all four Marines in the head. They left behind a high-powered M48A3 and its excellent Schmidt and Bender scope. Over the course of the next year, they allegedly killed two more Americans before a Marine sniper took them out and recovered the rifle. Skinta hammered home his message, know every aspect of your job and never, never let down your guard. Yeah. If you slack off or you take things for granted, you die. He, um, <clears throat> I, I had a lot, look, I was fortunate to have a lot of people around me that influenced me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing special. I'm a product of my environment and my, I'm, I'm direct reflection of my leadership. I'm so fortunate. But I'll tell you right now that um, what I did that day um, was because of him, was was because of the mentality that he instilled in me of knowing your job, knowing it and obsessing with it and knowing every aspect of it and knowing everybody else's job around you. Mm-hmm. And then when you know your job and you know what's right, you, you do that. You don't worry about what everybody else says. Yeah, the, the, the non-commissioned officers that, again, they're the same guys that raised me in the SEAL teams have such a huge impact and what what I also found interesting about this was this story about these snipers when I got to Ramadi in 2006 we heard this exact story mm-hmm. and you know it, it was another thing that made us more paranoid and made my guys more paranoid being out there and we actually had thought I didn't this as 2004 we thought it happened a little bit later and closer to our deployment but um, yeah man just uh, just a nightmare yeah yeah <laughs> another little commentary from you here back to the book shooting another human being was a math problem you were either right or wrong with no subjective in between decided by someone else I liked problems that were black and white life or death before taking a shot at a target 1,000 meters away you had to calculate the effects of the light air at altitude wind humidity angle of fire cartridge velocity and gravity you had to align the target the background and train the weather the noise and the weapon you had to work in concert with others at the same time the target enemy was figuring out how to kill you combat was a zero-sum decision-making played for the highest stakes live or die and 31 people started the course and 13 people graduated. Yeah. So that that should tell everyone why that sniper designation is so damn hard to get. It is. Because it it's no joke. And there's usually at any point in time, there's not, there's usually around 300 school trained snipers in the Marine Corps at any time. Really? Mm-hmm. Dang. Yeah. That's in my task unit, which is about 40 SEALs, we had 13 snipers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so awesome. <laughs> Killers. <laughs> Killers got lucky, you know. I got lucky. These th- stars aligned. Yeah. Okay, so now you're trained up. 
And then in 2007, you deploy. You deployed to Iraq. I did. First deployment. How pumped were you? I was pumped. I, you know, I just, I just got out of school, trained sniper, man. You know, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Turn the heat up, right? And, um, and where we were going was actually a bad spot. I mean, we were in Karma. Yep. And uh, it, it had, it had been bad, but it mm-hmm. was like we were part of that surge. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we got there, we took some contact once, and it just like the water faucet mm-hmm. turned off. Mm-hmm. You know, you go from streets that you're fighting down to. Next thing you know, you, I mean, you could walk down with no gear. And so what were you guys doing? Just doing patrols? We were doing a lot of dwell ops. So Which we, is what? We would go out. Basically, what they were the, the theory on this was we would go out off the fob and stay like four or five days okay. in a house. And, you know, um, you know, we, we would get hit by indirect fire, uh, you know, some. Uh, but, I mean, I, but I was only there for like 45 days. And then you got... I got what, hit in the hand with a what a I got, spider? I got bit on the right hand, my right hand by a spider, and uh, actually suffered severe nerve damage, lost the movement in my last three fingers. And uh, they casavac you for this? Yeah, or medevac you back to Germany? Yeah, so they, they sent me to Al Assad and tried to mm-hmm. fix it there. I did. I, they they rushed me in. I had two surgeries in Camp Fallujah, and then um, they they moved me to Al Assad, and they sent me back to Germany, and I was there for like. 25 days in the hospital in Germany trying to save your hand basically yeah. and then they sent me home and then I was having to do occupational therapy to get you know to get my fingers back they wouldn't move you know when so were you back in Kentucky no I was back at Hawaii back okay in my back unit. to Hawaii home. yeah All right. back in my unit and but you did have a little bit of Kentucky with you there in the form of bourbon yeah, yeah, a lot of it. I was drinking. I was a drinker. You started getting after it a little bit. I did. I Even a little job. bit too much. Yeah, too much. You know, I started, you know, it was hard. It was hard coming home and knowing my teammates were still over there and knowing that my unit was still there and I wasn't part of it, you know. And then uh, did you go, did you have to go back or you came back to the States like on leave? Uh, No, no. After you were, after your hand was hurt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I came back to Kentucky. Got yeah, it. Yeah, and I, you hung out there for a while. And actually, you lost a couple friends at that time I period, did. didn't you? I did. Gosh, Just it was terrible. Tragical, tragic was, situations. Yeah, it was terrible. You know, I had a guy, the guy, you know, actually, is, is, you know, his name's on my chest. And um, he, we played football together. And he, uh, he had called me. I was leaving the hospital, and I was coming home that weekend. And he had called me. Um, he had called me right before I was on the way to the hospital and said, hey, hey man, we're going to go to this football game. You know, we're going to watch my little brother play, you know, all that. And I got a call as soon as I was leaving the hospital, and he had uh, he had a wreck and got killed. Yeah, a close close friend. And I lost a, um, another friend. She got she got killed in December. Dang. Yeah. Not not exactly what you want to go home on leave for, man. That's harsh. No, no, no. But you know, it, it's it's just the way the way it goes, you know. Yeah. And and then so you spend that time at home. You go back. You rejoin your battalion. And this is when you find out that they want volunteers to go help out in Afghanistan. Yeah. So we had built up. We I, I was back probably a year, year and a half. Went to Mountain Sniper School, and um, you know I, I became in charge of my own team. Um, got we got meritoriously promoted. Um, I was you know I, I was a lance corporal leading a five man team with a sergeant on it. You know, and uh, you know I I uh, ended up taking like I had the worst like I got like the newest guys. They mm-hmm. gave me the newest guys and. Uh, we ended up being the um, general support team, so we, we moved all the way up to the platoon and ended up being you know one of the best one of the best teams in the platoon, and um, yeah, so we're out at Twenty Nine Palms doing our final train up to go back to Iraq, and this was when mm-hmm. nothing was going nothing on two thousand nine. I mean, they weren't letting you leave the wire, right? And uh, we had no mission, so it kind of sucked, right? And uh, they came and said, "We need five volunteers to go to Afghanistan," and I said, "What's the mission?" They said, "We don't know, but we just need five bodies." And I raised my hand and said, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go. 
again, like how many milliseconds does yeah. it take to, no, make that Zero. <laughs> to make that decision? <laughs> and so the, what you were volunteering for, you find out later, is an is embedded training team? Yeah, an advisory team. Explain so, what that's all about. So an embedded training team is where they take, uh, you know, they take different ranks and different skill sets of Marines and they put them, or, you know, whatever, you know, military unit, and they put them together and they, they embed them with, uh, you know, uh, an Afghan unit, you know, so we were embedded with 80 Afghans, a whole, uh, not a, it was a company. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's, we just lived, we did everything with them. We did everything from, you know, teaching them weapons tactics and, and, uh, you know, um, shooting, shooting. We, I did the, the changeover for the NATO weapons, right? So we took them from okay. the Soviet to the NATO weapons. And that's another key factor that we need to bring up to talk about in that gunfight. Um, so we were, you know, teaching them on that, quality them all on that, you know, everything from everything. I mean, we, we did everything with these guys. Because and then, cause you, did you do any kind of workup before you went over? Yeah. So with we, that, was it with that team? Yeah. That your actual team that yeah. you were going to deploy with? Yeah. So we did. We did a workup with them. Actually, you know, I just left Twenty Nine Palms. I go back and we train for like a month or two in Okinawa, Japan, with this new team, and then we head back to Twenty Nine Palms, <laughs> and then we go from uh, well, we went back, so we went to Bridgeport, and then we mm-hmm. came down Twenty Nine Palms. We did all our mountain stuff at Bridgeport, um, all our mules and all that stuff, you know, packing, and, mm-hmm. and then uh, we came down and did it, ended in uh, Twenty Nine Palms, and then we headed over. And that was with that four man team. Yeah, with uh, Lieutenant Johnson, Gunny Kenefick, um and Doc Layton, myself. I'm gonna talk about those guys a little bit here in the book. <laughs> Lieutenant Mike Johnson's four-man team at Monty, this is where you end up, mm-hmm. place called Monty, which is 10 miles worth north of another fob called Joyce. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Johnson, sunny and smiling with an easy laugh, but completely professional with the highest standards. I'd climbed mountains with him in California, of course, and I knew he was as strong physically as he was mentally. Staff Sergeant Aaron Kanifik was a personnel specialist with eight years expertise in administration. So his job was to bring some order to the Afghan personnel procedures and pay records. Doc Layton, our corpsman, would provide some basic medical care to the Afghans in the villages, but his primary job was to be ready in case any advisors or Afghan soldiers were wounded. I had a job too. Lieutenant Johnson put me in charge of tactics, operations, and weapons training. Before each patrol, I approved of the Afghan scheme of maneuver, inspected the radios and guns, coordinated fire support, and planned an emergency escape route. This was far easier than planning the sniper missions I had been trained for. So you you were you were kind of the most tactically savvy guy in the group, being a sniper already deployed to Iraq. Yeah, no, I was, and you know, and what what prepared me was my training that I did with my team. Um, you know, my sniper team. I mean, look, I had. You know, people thought I was crazy. They thought I was crazy the way that I was training in my platoon before. You're like, we're going to Iraq. We're not going to do anything. I'm like, I don't give a shit, right? Like, I'm, I was still learning TACSAT, and I was still learning, you know, SATCOM, and I was still learning HF, and I was still learning how to learn crypto. I mean, I wanted to know every aspect of every part of the job. I was learning every – I was going over to the to the BAS and learning, uh, you know, all the medical stuff that I could, and I was, you know, I mean, everything I could do, like if, if I could get just a little nugget of knowledge mm-hmm. and, and better myself in every aspect, I was doing it. And um, so, yeah, so when I got over to this team, I mean, you know, I I was the only tactical guy in there, you mm-hmm. know. And, uh, 
Yeah, and it was, you know, they they when it came to the tactics, when it came to making sure that the weapons were ready, when it came to making sure that the vehicles were ready, that that the that the you know that the the jammers were working, that you know, when, if anything that mattered in the patrol, it was on me. Was on you. Yeah, the trucks were loaded. Uh, and the the reason that the Marine Corps put the teams together like this is because, well, that they're trying to develop the whole Afghan army, every aspect of it, not yeah. just the tactical side, but they want like. The administration so that the people can start getting paid on time and the organization so they got the lieutenant in there and at the same time they want to help the villagers so they put a corpsman in there yeah. to do medical work so that's kind of just an anyone if anyone's thinking why the hell would you put together a team like that it's because the people that are supposed to do the fighting are actually supposed to be the afghans mm -hmm. right yes and 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 the team is there to support them help them train them and get them ready yeah and that's that's the mind that's the theory Right. right. The theory right. is the theory. is that you train I them. I should have said that. Yeah, you, know, the you train them, and they do the fighting, and you're just there to advise them. Right. Um, but it never works that way. It does. It didn't work that way in Iraq. And and one of the things that I pointed out many times was, you know, what kind of you you're, you want to develop a relationship with with a group, right? And and now you say, okay, we're going to train you, but when it comes time to do something dangerous, you guys just go by yeah. yourselves. Mm -hmm. that, that's not you're not building a relationship. You're you're in fact you're going backwards. No, it's yeah, it's the same way. So you get there and you start doing you're just kind of going on patrols. You're going on patrols with the with the Afghan yeah, army was, company. It was kind of interesting, you know, cuz I was kind of the high strung one on the team, you know, like I was like the one that always was you know, we need to be ready to fight. You know, I don't know how many arguments I got into with some of the the the, the leadership in in the teams, you know, cuz we we were a 21-man team but we were broken into four-man elements and mm -hmm. spread out, you know, in, in this area. And I don't know how many times I got into arguments with people in the team of, you know, hey, this is how we need to do it. We need to stay up. I mean, I was I was trying to train them. I was doing stuff of, you know, trying to train them to do IVs at night with with nods and they're like, "Why the hell are we doing this?" You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. and, and a lot of people, you know, looked down on it. And uh and and I said, "I'm going to prepare to fight." And they said, you know, we're not, you know, they, so many times the leadership got on me. You, you, we're not going over there to fight. We're going to advise. And that was the mindset mm -hmm. of a lot of this. And I'm not gonna say my team, but a lot of the team. And, uh, and it showed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for everyone out there that's wearing a uniform right now, man, be ready for the worst case scenario all the time. You be know, ready for it. You know what I tell them is I said, you know, Lieutenant Johnson was a, was a a comm guy, satellite guy. Doc Layton was a blue side corpsman, and Gunny Kenefick was an S one guy. You know, and I always wonder, do you think that they ever thought they'd be in one of the deadliest battles in Afghanistan? Mm -hmm. Do you think they ever thought they didn't? You know, you don't know where you're going to be at, but one day you're going to be tested. Yeah, and you better be ready. So you guys are rolling out on these patrols. Here's a good kind of aspect of what you see on those patrols. And you call the army, the Afghan army soldiers, Askars, am I saying that yeah, right? Yeah, they're called Askars. Askars. All right, here we go, back to the book. When we walked into some hamlets, you could feel something was wrong. When kids threw rocks at you, you knew what the parents were telling them. Sometimes the Askars grabbed the kids' soccer balls and sliced them apart. This didn't win any hearts and minds, but it did stop the rocks. Whenever the elders hurried through the ceremonial tea, though, I'd watch the Askars. When any soldier senses danger, he crouches down a few inches to make himself less of a target. When the Askars did that, I went on full alert. Hafez, am I saying that right? Yeah, uh, so his name's Fazel, so I had named him Hafez in that to protect him. Got it. He's, he's here in America now. Okay, well, good. Hafez was our lead interpreter, and we quickly learned our best warning system. At 
a 37 year old sergeant major retired from the Afghan army Hafez had served in Kunar for three years with advisor teams the Afghan soldiers distrusted him because he refused to support their never-ending schemes to skim off the Americans so he's your your most trusted advisor interesting that you point out how when when soldiers sense danger and I was telling you about JP my the lead sniper in one of my two platoons and TU bruiser and when he came on the podcast I described him walking through the streets and you and I because like I told you man I didn't think JP was gonna live because JP was too brave for his own damn good yeah but when I you know I'd, I'd be watching I'd be like like holding security and watching a patrol go and you'd see you know I'd see guys moving with that little crouch because everyone's expecting that the shooting's gonna start and I'd see JP man walking with his head up and his chest out like ready to get something yeah. <laughs> like, man it's nice to be 23 years old and not think you can die <laughs> so that's my yeah. brother JP uh, that's and, awesome. and, and the other thing that you know when you're in these foreign countries when you're in Iraq you're in Afghanistan the the locals we can't tell the difference between we really can't tell the difference between a good guy and a bad guy now you learn some sense of it where you go okay that guy looks shady and you're you're probably pretty accurate but the a guy like Hafez he's oh, gonna he know no he's gonna know instantly he was the unofficial fifth member of our team inside of Hamlet if he shook his head at us we knew it was time to forget the tea and get out so how much good how much how often would you go into a hamlet and the people were cool and all good and drinking tea and you know most of the time i mean most of the time look i mean look i, I you know the, the people there want that want it to be better mm-hmm. i mean they live in the shit yeah they live there they want it to be better you know they're just caught in a bad situation it's not a it's not a it's not a simple equation you know there's nothing simple mm-hmm. about the life that they have to live mm-hmm you made some friends going back to the book in the hills along the Pakistani border. No Afghan military or civilian had much of anything. I think practically every American soldier or Marine tried to help in some way. We purchased candy and, and trinkets in the markets to give to the kids. I soon had two little buddies, boys about 10 or 11. They'd hang around the ma- main gate yelling, Maida, Maida, trying to say your name when they saw me. At first I'd buy them Cokes and then started sharing my care packages from home, soap, candy, peanuts, gun, gum. Maybe a decade from now, some kids remember that some Americans were kind to them even when their older brothers were shooting at them. Maybe not. You don't help out because you expect something in return. So you're you're a human being, man. Trying yeah, to trying to take them. care of some kids out them. there. Um I think this is getting into your first sort of legit we'll call it combat. Yeah. And uh, you're taking some small arms fire. I'm going to the book here. Staff Sergeant Kenefick was standing outside a bunker about 100 feet from me. Meyer, we're under attack, he yelled. Technically, yes, but the shepherd, there's some shepherd out there, but the shepherd was shooting without poking his head up to aim. He had one chance in a thousand of hitting us. A second harmless harmless burst followed, the bullets cracking more than 10 feet above our head. Call for Artie now, Staff Sergeant Kenefick yelled, holding the radio uh, headset out towards me. Oh, nice. Staff Sergeant, soon-to-be Gunnery Sergeant Kanevik, needed the lowly corporal's help. I trotted toward him, stopped, assumed parade rest postures, arm locked behind my back, chest pushed forward in the wide open, and pasted a respectful expression on my face. What does the Staff Sergeant wish the corporal to do? <laughs> Another burst from the AK. This is no time to be a smart-ass Meyer. A few more rounds, still way too high. I'm locked at parade rest. Aye, Staff Sergeant. He balanced the headset, considering whether to throw it at me. Meyer, hurry up. 
he had started calling in the artillery mission and when I got to him he was asking me what do I say now left 100 drop 200 I said he repeated it on the radio what now he asked fire for effect I said should be dead on okay fire for effect he repeated over the radio and that's it you hit the guy but uh <laughs> it, it's funny that you even in, in that situation um, you were talking about being a, kind of a wise ass when you were a kid. Yeah. You're still a wise ass. <laughs> yeah, you know, the thing about Kenefick was me and him were button heads real hard yeah. at that time. You know, we were button heads. Um, y- you know how some people just take over, like he, he took over and tried to make up for his lack of, you know, nothing against him. He wasn't a combat. I mean, right. it wasn't his job, but what he tried to make up for in the lack of his combat knowledge was his authority, right? Mm-hmm. And so... You know, he he had kind of pissed me off pretty bad about, you know, asking me to do, you know, you 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 need to stand at parade rest. Like, he was all big on it, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, we're on a a cop. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you you still need, you know, customs and courtesies, right? And so, like, I used that that situation to make a point. You know, he just kind of pushed me over the edge. But after that, (laughs) we were... Yeah, that's what kind of broke you guys out, right? Yeah, it broke us. That's awesome. That's awesome. great. You had some good Afghan soldiers, and I know you were talking to me about them early. One guy that by the name of Dodd Ali. Here you go. He was fun to talk to, open, friendly, and fearless. We'd sit around talking and asking questions of each other like kids in middle school, learning as much as we could about each other. He proudly cleaned his saw five times a day and absorbed every tip I gave him about shooting. He was the most disciplined Askar on base. That's why we gave him the saw in the first place. So you had a good relationship with that. Yeah, I mean, I had a good relationship with all my Afghans. I mean, I... I I ate I ate at least two meals a day with them. Um, you know, usually I didn't eat breakfast with them. I would eat it over at the uh, over at the uh, you know the chow hall. Mm-hmm. Um, but I used you know that was my that was my policy. I mean, every night I eat dinner with them. Every single night I would eat dinner with my Afghan soldiers because mm-hmm. I was no better than them. Yeah, man. You know, sometimes I hear. I hear people. You know, people that don't understand at all what was going on in Iraq or Afghanistan. They'll, you know, we, we were, you know, America was occupiers and how could you, and it's like, I always remind them, like, we were fighting alongside the, the Iraqi soldiers, fighting alongside the Afghan soldiers. Yeah. I mean, I mean we, spilling blood. Yeah, I mean, we weren't, I mean, just because it was Iraq and Afghanistan war, we weren't fighting Iraq and Afghanistan. We were fighting with them. Mm-hmm. We weren't fighting against Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah. We were fighting next to them. You know, we were helping them against the same enemy. Yeah, you know, so many people miss that point, man, and it's a, it's a, it's an important point to be missing. It, it's a, it's it's a big, it's a big, it's a big fact. Yeah. <laughs> man, I hear that and it just turns my stomach, man. Um, now I kind of joked about that that first situation being your first combat, and now you had legit your first kind of trial by fire. Yeah. Um, you're at combat. You're at the outpost at, at Cop Monty, and you're under attack. You actually got some wounded. Some Ascars are wounded, and you're here. We're going back to the book. Where's Staff, where's Staff Sergeant Kenefek? I yelled. Doc Layton pointed toward the Northeast Tower. Get over there and stay with him. I yelled. Suicide bombers sometimes rush the wire, trying to take an take an infidel with them as they evaporated in a red flash. Without hesitating, Doc Layton ran down the stairs, across the open space, and into the tower with Staff Sergeant Kenefick. Two or three seconds later, a rocket slammed into their bunker, exploding into pieces. An Afghan worker huddled there behind beside the sandbags. Smoke rolled out of the tower. They're gone! I yelled to Johnson, not believing what I had just seen. I resumed firing. It's all you can do. The best first aid at that point was to return fire Johnson worked the radio Fox 3-1 Fox 3-1 this is Fox 3 Staff Sergeant Kenefick Doc Layton come on answer up 
We kept firing, but it seemed unworldly now. We were on automatic. Lieutenant Johnson got on the radio again. 3-1, Fox 3-1, this is Fox 3. Staff Sergeant Kennefick, Dot Layton, come on, man, answer up. Then finally, yeah, yeah, this is 3-1, we're good. Ten minutes later, our attack helicopters began strafing runs, low rumbling burrs like a giant burping. Incredible firepower, those lovely birds. Enemy fire ceased. Attack over. Johnson and I ran over to the bunker as Staff Sergeant Kennefick and Doc Layton stumbled out. The four of us sat on the bloody sandbags in the growing dusk talking about it. Their eyes were slightly glazed and wide, wide open. Lieutenant Johnson, Staff Sergeant Kennefick, and Doc Layton weren't infantry. They had considered that by coming to Afghanistan they might die, but it hadn't kicked in until now. Now they had heard the screams and seen the blood. Everybody soot-covered understood now that if we went home together, it might not be alive. The Askars were cleaning up the bloody mess not six feet from us, taking away the ripped-up body of their friend. We mumbled some stuff. All of us were too embarrassed to talk about our feelings, but we knew what we were all thinking. This shit was for real, and there were only four of us. We'll be there for each other, Doc Layton said. The surfer dude surprised me. He had said the one thing that made any sense. Yeah, that was um, that was the Sunday before. Uh, so Ganjgal was on a on a Tuesday. That was September sixth of two thousand nine. It was a huge rocket attack. I mean, they were dialed in. It was terrible. Like I can remember it as if I was there. It was. Terrible. How many rockets did they fire? Uh, I think we had nine that hit that one oh sevens that hit dead on, like in not just nine that hit just inside of of not the whole base, but just my Afghan base. That's that's probably this you know where we're at right now is probably mm-hmm. bigger than that. It was terrible, mm-hmm. and that was a wake up call. Oh, it was for all of us. I mean, it, it was for all of us, and it was for them. And uh, you know, I'll never forget. Um, you know, I'll never forget talking. I mean, we, we finally sat down and talked about what do we do if we lose one of it. You know, what do we want? And, um, gosh, it was so real. And, and you know, I'll never forget Kenefic. I had um, I had medevaced out a guy, uh, a wounded soldier that day. Um, and he was putting me in for a Bronze Star. And I'll never forget, he, we were just walking through in the, um, in the little hooch. And he said, uh, and where we lived at. And he was just, you know, kind of joking a little bit later on that day. He's like, hell, Meyer, you know, the way shit's going for you and as unlucky as you are, he goes, you'll probably be in for a Medal of Honor before this deployment's over with. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just crazy. Yeah. So that's two days before you guys head down to Ganjagal. We'd actually got the call that night that we were supposed to go to Ganjagal on the 7th. And uh, they ended up pushing it right to the 8th. So we left the next day. You talk about it a little bit here. Ganjagal lay two miles north of Joyce, and we drove right by the mouth of the valley. Ganjagal sounded like the name of an Irish town full of smiling faces and friendly pubs. I could see a few of the larger compounds far back on a hillside nestled against steep ridgelines. Bad place, Hafez muttered. Bad people. So you're getting right away, getting told no, by No, no, I mean, I mean, we were told instantly. I mean, we were told, like, I mean, we, we, I mean, yeah, there was no doubt. 
Now, one thing that I think made you feel more com- a little bit more comfortable, you talk about in the book, historically the Taliban had not sprung ambushes from inside villages. So that wasn't discussed at the briefing. Plus, we were going in with 90 Afghans and 15 advisors with a platoon from 132 deployed behind us in a quick reaction force. This shows us, this show belongs to, the, to our Afghan counterparts. Fabio, am I saying that right? Yeah, Fabio. Fabio said, we advisors will stand off to the side and let them talk with the elders. We're not in the lead, we're assisting. That made no sense, I thought. Considering who is doing the briefing and who is hearing it, we were in t- the tactical lead, even if we claimed otherwise. So that's a little, but poli- that's a political thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's an ignorance thing. Well, I, I think it's an ignorant thing too. But the reason it happens? No, no, no. Of course, I mean, technically, we fail under. So, t- I mean, technically, the way that this works, as crazy as this sounds. I was working for, like, my commander was the Afghan commander. Mm-hmm. Whatever the Afghan commander told me was what I was supposed to do. Right. I mean, and I'm saying that's a political thing oh, for yeah. us to say politically, look, the Afghans oh, yeah. are running this operation. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, that, you know, but that, um, if you remember what I said a little bit earlier about, you know, hey, we're not going to do the fighting. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's the mentality of the leadership of the team. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. And as you just said here, that that made no sense. I thought, and you were a corporal, twenty. How old were you? I was uh, twenty-one. Twenty-one years old, and you're looking at this, going, "Hey, man, this doesn't make any sense." We're the ones that are sitting here briefing it. Yeah. You know, we're the ones that know how to call for fire. Uh, yeah, I mean, and I brought. Well, I mean, first off, first off, the Afghans can't even talk to anybody that calls for fire or the helicopters. I mean, they don't even have any comms with them. They're on HF. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I so the the three main factors that I brought up in the brief, and, and I brought up that look, we're only everybody's going in. We have over twelve different moving elements between the OPs and different teams inside mm-hmm. this patrol, all on one frequency. Mm-hmm. I brought that up. I brought up the fact that, um, that we didn't have direct air support is on fifteen minute strip alert, and that's in Jalalabad. So all and you know, so they were taking it as if the birds would be there within 15 minutes. I said, that's not what 15-minute strip alert means. They're up That means off the ground in 15 minutes. minutes. And then they still got nine, or probably 60 minutes to get from Jalalabad to us. And so, uh, you know, that was the other factor. And then the other thing that I brought up was um, why would we put our snipers 2,000 meters away from the village? Outside of their effective range of their weapons. There you go. But here's what I was told. I'm an E-4 in the United States Marine Corps. What do I know about mission planning? And that's why I was taken out of the team. Check. So, um, when you say when you talk about getting taken out of the team, explain how, how that went down a little bit. So you got your four man team, yeah. Team Monty. Yeah, Team Monty. And so what they did was is you know they had there's like they, they would put the teams you know you would go with your Afghans in here to do mm-hmm. their part. Um, so our team was supposed to go to the back of the village cover the back side of it and then we were going to search a couple houses up there for a machine mm-hmm. gun and uh, while the meeting went on and they took me out of the team because i brought up those concerns and um you know they they kind of took it as me going against the orders questioning their authority and they replaced me with gunny gunny johnson <clears throat> so i'm just i just have to say this right now so i talk about this all the time man um if you're in a leadership position you don't want yes men you don't want yes men. You want the, the corporal that says, hey, boss, I don't understand why you do that right now. And if your answer 
to your subordinate is because I said so, or it's you're an E4, be quiet, or you're an E5, be quiet, if that's what your answer is, that means you don't have a real answer. That means that what you're doing is probably wrong. So surround yourself. The best people you can have on your team are the people that are gonna question what, what it is that your, your plan is. And if they question it and you can't, don't have a good logical answer and your plan doesn't stand on its own two feet, well, think about it and reassess it and take some advice from down the chain of command on how, how what we could do to change this plan up. Yeah, I mean, it was, look, they're complacent. You know, that's that's the type of mentality that you have when you don't expect to go get your ass handed to you. Mm-hmm. That's why you need to expect to get your ass handed to you every day and train like it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I used to, when I was running training, we trained for worst case scenario all the time. It was like worst, I mean, you know what, and it, it it was it was insane like we had great we had great financing for our training so the training was awesome we had mayhem going on we had paintballs and we had laser this multi-million dollar laser tag system we had role players and it was awesome and i wanted mayhem and we had we would put guys down and you'd have to carry them out and it was a it'd be like a it'd be mayhem and sometimes guys go this is kind of unrealistic and what are the chances of this really happening yeah and i'd be like look if this doesn't happen great you don't ever have to worry about it happening for real, but if it happens, you'll be ready for it, at least as ready as you can be. Yeah. So you get pulled off the team. I got pulled and off the team, and my job was going to be to stay with the vehicles. So, like, basically we were going to drive vehicles in, park the vehicles, and that was the other thing I said. I said, this is dumb. Why Why would we leave our up-armored guns a couple miles away? Mm-hmm. And they said, you mean, you ready for the response here? You're ready. Mm. Uh, well, Dakota, uh, because we want to go into the village clandestine, you have a 90-man patrol. Yeah. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Uh, just to paint the picture for everyone, basically there's a deep ravine, walls on either side. At the top of the ravine, it kind of splits into two other ravines, and there's kind of villages on both sides of that. Yeah, it splits into it splits into two. Like It's kind of like two valleys inside of a big valley. Right. And on the right-hand side was another bad valley, but we were going in the left-hand side, and that was Ganjagal. And, um, I mean, this this terrain was built to fight. It yeah. was built to fight. I mean, they had trenches in it. The, there were trenches in it that they used to fight out of. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's nuts. And, obviously, you're walking up the valley, which means automatically you're in the low ground, which is not where we want to be ever. <sighs> All right. Now you, the, one of the guys you were going to be working with um, in the Hummers was Staff Sergeant Juan Rodriguez Chavez. Here we go, back to the book. I sought out Staff Sergeant Juan Rodriguez Chavez, our motor transport chief. I'd known him for five months. He didn't stand on rank, and we traded stories about growing up on farms. He had grown up on a ranch in Mexico. Having a similar approach to life, Rod and I had become friends. He was in the eighth grade when his family moved to Texas where he learned English, played football, earned good grades, and roped cows and rodeos. Our team called him Hot Rod. He laughed a lot, bragged about how smart his two daughters were, and kept all our vehicles in top condition. Rod, this mission is fucked up. If the shit hits the fan, I said, we're going in. My team's walking point, and they'll get cut off. We have to go in and get them out. And he looked back at you. Devil dog, Rod said, say the word, and I'll do the driving. Yeah. That's legit. 
He's the man. He is the man. And uh, continuing on, you say, having some sort of contingency plan now, I walked back to the advisor headquarters and briefed Lieutenant Johnson. And by the way, Lieutenant Johnson didn't want you out of the team either, right? No, he no, wanted he, you no. to stay him with him. were pissed. He knew that you should be with the team. Yeah. If things get hairy, I said, I'm coming in. Rod will drive. Radio your coordinates and get down to the wash. Fucking climb in and we'll haul ass back to the main body because they were going to be exposed on the far end of that wash. Yeah, so I, I, so everything that I did was planned out the night before. Check. Everything that I did was planned out the night before. And it was all in our team. I mean, I told him. I mean, I told him, I said, uh, you know, you say the word and I'll head in there. I don't care. And I'm coming to get you. And, uh, I mean, that we, we had this all planned out. Like, mm-hmm. all they had to do was get to the road. And I would be there. Continuing on, back to the book. In the talk, a report about Ganjagal had come in via brigade internet. A special forces team reported that 32 fighters were moving from Pakistan to reinforce Ganjagal. Half an hour later, the video feed from an unmanned aerial vehicle showed a man with a mortar tube on his back entering a known safe house two kilometers north of Ganjagal village. 10 minutes later, four more men entered the same house. So, so you're you're watching this. When, well, so here's the crazy part. Nobody told us. Oh, so you didn't even get that report. Nobody told us. Check. Um, and I got to point out to everyone, I'm I'm obviously skipping giant chunks of this book, and there's a w- awesome amount of detail that that Dakota goes into in in how this is going down, and I'm kind of hitting the wave tops to get to get the story there, but. Uh, okay, you don't even get that intel, but doesn't matter because the next day, I guess where you're going into the valley. Um, you got a guy with you named Swenson. He's in charge of some border police, some Afghan border police. Is that right? Yeah. So, Swenson's border police turned to Hafez when the lights went out. Dushman, he said. Am I saying that right? Dushman. 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 Dushman, which is another term for, for enemy. For enemy. Dushman. They said we must turn back, so they're already freaking out. Yeah, yeah. So they, I think, I, uh, I think that they, they were, uh, like, some of the police had already knew they had leaked. Oh, it. tipped it off. Yep. They had. Or leaked, they, they, they had, had information one way or the other. They had leaked when we were coming in. They had leaked yeah. the plan. Yeah. So I think that that's why they were trying to bail out. Yeah. In my opinion, yeah. was because they knew what was already there. Bit, yeah. Got it. And um, just before five in the morning, Rod and I heard gravel crunching on the trestle. So now you're actually in position. You dropped off the guys, and now uh, the the Afghan team with some of the advisors, including Team Monty, are heading up the valley, and you're waiting yeah, at, si- at the bottom end of the valley. Yeah, I'm sitting back at the uh, you know back at the trucks, and they're going you know they're going into the valley, and um, yeah, at this point now everybody's leaving the valley. Yeah, this this part. It, just before five in the morning, Rod and I heard gravel crunching on the trail. Men, women, children, sheep, and goats suddenly hurried by our trucks heading out of the valley. Pre-dawn always brought the first sing-song call to prayer followed by per- people scurrying about. And and this is just, you, you knew right then, right? Oh, 100%, 100% that it's on. No, 110%. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, no doubt. So this, you know, just for anyone that's listening that are, isn't putting two and two together here, there's a village with a bunch of civilians in it, and the civilians all leave, and they take their animals with them. They take all their. They take everything that's worth worth anything with them. So they know that there's. It's on. <clears throat> Going back to the book, as Lieutenant Johnson approached the first row of houses, he radioed back to Garza that he and Lieutenant Rula were heading toward the house of an imam. 
one of the village elders. Seconds later, an RPG streaked in from the east, followed by a burst of PKM, a Russian-made machine gun that shoots a hefty 7.62-millimeter cartridge. It started tearing up the ground and the adobe walls. As the men took cover among the terrace walls, more PKM fire came in from the northeast, joined by AKs at a closer range. Enemy fighters were crouched inside the houses and below the windows of the schoolhouse on the southern ridge. They were hiding in the alleyways and dug in behind the stone terrace walls to the east. They had a dozen fixed positions and were shooting downhill with the sun behind them yeah they knew what they were doing yeah this is um again um do any kind of anybody with any kind of military knowledge whatsoever when you read that paragraph or that that those two paragraphs right there you see that you are in a, in a horrible horrible scenario multiple enemy machine gun positions in elevated coordinated attack yeah horrible and here's your thoughts back to the book I waited for the firing to die down but it didn't the chaos of the RPG explosions PKM machine guns AKs and M16s increased I heard the report of a recoilless rifle basically a hundred pound shoulder or tripod mounted cannon and a sure sign of a planned ambush as the douchemen don't lug that over the hills for an exercise then I heard the crump crump of their mortar shells. There was a wide babble of voices on the command radio, advisors yelling at each other to clear the net. No one was taking charge. There was no central command. I was pacing around frustrated, being out of the fight and not being able to help. So you'd seen enough of like little firefights that would yeah. be a little burst of fire and then people are gonna run yeah, away. Yeah, I mean, you know, like they're gonna just, they, they blow their load like right in the beginning and then, you know, they don't have enough. They, like they're not able to, like us, resupply. Mm-hmm. Not, they, they don't sustain anything. This was endless. And then you, you mentioned this earlier and again, just to kind of point out to people so they, so they understand what you were talking about. You said, hey, there's gonna be f- 14 different maneuver elements. Uh, 12, yeah, 12, 12 different 12. maneuver elements and they're all on the same net now what that means is they're all in the same radio frequency so yes. picture this you you're trying to have a conversation on the phone but so are 12 other people 11 other people all trying to have a conversation on the phone at the same time yeah with their with their nerves with their nerves while they're <laughs> while chaos is happening yeah and so this is what you end up doing is actually on a phone you have a better chance because a phone will kind of kind of let some of that traffic through but when you start stepping on each other on the radio they just cut each other off and you can't hear anything and that's exactly what happened and the other piece of it was it's not just that it was all that one frequency everything had to be relayed through those snipers oh, to get they back in the elevated high ground to get back to the, could you did you have direct comms with the guys on the ground? Yes, I did. Okay. But I'm saying like to get to, to the command. To get so to if the you talk. like you know, and, and the big thing I brought up was was you know what happens if you're calling in a medevac and you're calling in a call for fire? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're trying to. That's that's like trying to call the fire department and the ambulance, and and you're trying to call them at the same time. Like you gotta you gotta separate them. Yes. Actually, that's not a good example. It's trying to call the ambulance and an active shooter and trying to maneuver all that stuff happening yeah. at the same time. Yeah. <clears throat> Back to the book. Soon both ridgelines were sparkling with fire as the Askars and Dushman engaged each other with rocket propelled grenades. Smoke and shrapnel filled the air. Um, Swenson, he's, he's on. This is Highlander 6. He yelled over the din. Forward, forward line of troops pinned down at X ray Delta. 
heavy enemy fire. Request immediate suppression. Fire kilo echo. We'll adjust. So he's trying to call fire. You're back, and and, and Rod says, what do you think, Rod said. If the Dushman cut around the rear, I said, and close the back door, they'll catch our people in a fire sack. This is deep shit. They got to get out of there. The way to break up an ambush is to hammer it with heavy fire. The Humvee gave us armor, mobility, and a heavy gun. We would roll in and bring Team Monty back to the location of the command group. I grabbed the radio and called Fox Fox 3, Lieutenant Fabio. No reply. I tried Fox 6, Williams, and then Fox 9, First Sergeant Garza. No one replied. I was calling for permission to enter the valley, asking for it from anyone who would answer. Finally, Fox 7, Valdez, up on the northern ridge, answered on the net. Fox 3-3, your requests to enter the valley are denied. Fox 9 says you are to stay at your present location. And again, I'm throwing out a bunch of different names here. These are all the different leaders that are out there on these different 12 elements. And when you read the book for yourself, you can kind of catch and, and understand exactly what was happening there. But the, 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 basically what was going on was you're calling to whoever would answer to get permission to drive up the valley and go give a hand. Yeah, I was trying to get permission. I put down the handset and sat there, listening as, the do- as a dozen advisors tried to talk over a single radio channel. It was sheer bedlam. This is bullshit, Rod. I rechecked the ammo belt in the Mark 19. Rod sat in the driver's seat. You ready, Rod? Give it a few more minutes, Meyer. You'll fry for this, he said. He was right. I'd get sent home for disobeying a direct order. There was no question in my mind about that. I was already on thin ice with Garza, Fabio, and Williams. So I sat there frustrated listening to the shooting, flexing my hands on the grips of the Mark 19, and breathing hard. I tried to calm down. Maybe the battle sounded worse on the radio than it really was. Son of a bitch. Inside the tactical operations center at Joyce, so Joyce is a couple miles away, and the tactical operations center is is where they're running this. They were supposed to have... Um, kind of situational awareness of everything that's happening and they're supposed to be able to supply fire support. So that's when we're talking about the Tactical Operations Center at Joyce, that's what it is. Captain Aaron Harding was the senior officer on duty from midnight to eight in the morning, the battle captain. He had been in Afghanistan for eight months but had rarely controlled fires and and certainly none like this. As artillery stood by at Joyce, a few miles away, and at Asadabad, a few miles away, Harding asked for more and more information from the men on the long table. Who was requesting the fire missions? Was it Shadow 4, Highlander 5, or Fox 3? What had they heard from Fox 6? Who was presently in charge? The Marine advisors or the Afghan army? Did the ground commander know where all his troops were? Had they double-checked the grids of the KEs? He asked question after question. At Joyce, 120 millimeters, millimeter mortars were fired for f- fired 15 minutes after Fabio requested. The first shell, though, struck within 50 meters of the enemy position. The next flurry of shells was on target. That would be the only effective mi- fire mission of the entire day. And this is uh, one of the things that you're going to get more into. <laughs> we actually recently talked about the, the battle in the Idrang Valley and those guys would absolutely 100% have been overrun and what saved their ass over and over again was artillery and fire support. Yeah. That's the biggest advantage that we have on the battlefield as Americans. 100%. And your call and your team is calling for it. The advisors are calling for it. And they're not getting it. 
Yeah, we're not getting it. I mean, they shut it down. And and, and, and to, to try to give the benefit of the doubt here, right, of why they shut it down, I totally understand it. But it goes back to the one thing I said, right? I mean, they couldn't probably couldn't figure out who the hell was calling what and where what was where. I mean, I don't know that I could have confidently fired around. And But part of it was because of the layout of everybody on one frequency. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it, it goes back to that initial problem. Like, I don't know if I could have fired around. Now, am I am I pissed that they didn't fire rounds? Absolutely. Like, it was wrong. It was wrong for the reasons they did it. But, you know, I, I the confusion was so chaotic in the beginning, especially. Um, but I can tell you this, that if they had got the rounds, it would broke the, the enemy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, to... to advance your point of giving the benefit of the doubt if they have no idea where friendlies are they could have fired rounds on friendly forces as well well exactly and and then you know they'd have been accountable for that and and i'll tell you that's um that's a hard decision to make to to possibly you know fratricide blue on blue is is in my opinion that's the worst thing that can happen in war and so what these guys are being asked to possibly do is 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 risk a, a fratricide yes which in their minds and most probably a lot of military minds i think mine included well it's hard to say what's better you know risk fratricide or risk uh getting overrun now if we know for a fact people are getting overrun then you're like okay we'll risk fratricide and that's why that happens sometimes where people say drop that bomb no matter what but to say I'm not 100% sure people are going to go overrun, but I'm still going to take the risk of fratricide. At this point, that's probably why they're holding off. It is in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And they get to a point where they call the danger close rounds and try and take responsibility, and we'll, we'll get there. Back to the book. The enemy above the enemy above, worked their way around the edges of the valley, shooting downhill. The Taliban machine gunners tracked in on one Askar, then another, then another. It was a killing ground. They're all over the place. Swenson was thinking to himself, I may not make it out of here. If you hunker down and don't shoot back, you will surely die. The other side gains confidence and rushes forward. In the frenzy of combat, soldiers act like sharks. They sense weakness and circle in, picking off the wounded and the defenseless. Slowly, the douchemen were closing in from both sides of the wash. So they were ready. Oh, let me tell you something. They were good. They were good. They were trained. They had gear. You know, they mm-hmm. had they had plate carriers. Mm-hmm. They were taking the uniforms off our dead guys. Um, you know, they put Kevlar's on. Shit, they were good. Still trying to get fire support here. Swenson had identified enemy positions at four grid positions. There are two basic ways of calling in artillery. You can give the grid coordinates of the target or the kilo echo number for a grid and adjust after the initial round, or you can give your own location and a compass bearing to the, and distant to the target. The second technique is called a polar mission, provides the guns with the locations of both the friendly observer and the target. Tell the talk I'll send it polar, Swenson radioed to Kaplan. It's on me. Give them my initials. I'm making the decision, not them. Assuming accurate fire, the U.S. mortars were less than two miles away. The only target endangered by the polar plot was the enemy. By sending his initials, Swenson was taking full responsibility. If anything went wrong, if a friendly soldier or civilian were hit, the burden rested squarely on Swenson, not with the talk in the rear. 
The talk responded to the polar request by asking again for information that was impossible to provide. Where were all the friendly troops? What was the forward line of trace of the friendly units? Was everyone accounted for? Were any civilians endangered? Kaplan told Shadow, the relay team above him, tell the talk that it's critical. I repeat, critical. We have advisors pinned down. The talk denied Shadow's fire mission. Furious Sergeant Summers at Shadow 4 pressed back against the talk. The main element is being hit from the north, east, and south. All elements are engaged. I repeat, all elements are heavily engaged. We need fire missions now. The NCOs inside the talk were doing their job. And the artillery and mortar crews wanted to oblige, yet it seemed to Sergeant Summers that every time he relayed a fire mission, the talk asked him 20 questions. A second string was running the show here, and not well. In firefights, it's not unusual for 200 to 2,000 artillery shells to be fired. Over the course of the first hour of the battle at Gondragal, when men lay trapped and dying, the talk at Joyce allowed only 21 artillery shells to be fired. Since World War II, forward observers had received artillery fire under the rule of silence is consent. When an observer called for fire, the mission went by radio to the operations center and to the guns. Silence by the ops center constituted consent for the guns to fire. In the 21st century, with computers making instant firing calculations, within two minutes, shells could be hitting the target. But beginning about 2006, sergeants and lieutenants on the front lines were trusted less. The high command believed the grunts were too quick to call in fires that endangered civilians, resulting in an embittered population that supported the insurgency. The solution was to apply a strict new rule. Two months before Gondragal, General Stanley McChrystal, the senior commander in Afghanistan, issued a directive that forbade the use of artillery against or near any structure likely to contain civilians unless the higher, the next higher headquarters commander had approved. That ended silence's consent. The high command had shifted decision-making from the battlefield to the staff. Swenson was not trusted to make the hard decisions. Instead, officers in the talk with a confused idea of the battlefield had to decide whether to honor his requests for fire. Yeah, and that, so that's where my problem comes in, right? Is, you know, if the doctrine is that you, I give my initials, I take the responsibility, well, then follow the doctrine. Yeah. You know, that's, there's, there's where they went wrong. And, and I'll, I'll tell you something else that, you know, you talked about how confusing it was over the net. And, and clearly it was obviously very confusing. How long would it take to verbally explain the layout of this whole situation? Uh-oh. It would take a very long time. Uh-oh. It would take an extremely eloquent person who had the time to kind of compose himself and, and, and sit there and try and explain it. That's why you make... Kilo echoes. That's why you have these pre-planned fire positions so that you don't have to think anymore. Yes. We can direct fires and and what instead of having to communicate what the situation on the ground is, what you communicate is this is what we need and this is where you need to put it. Yeah, I mean that's a hundred percent it. I mean that's a hundred percent it. Is is you know um, you could never first off you, you could never relay all that information there and right. and guess what? And at the end of the day, it was irrelevant to what they were needing to do. Yeah. And also, by the time you, if you could relay it, by the time you relayed it, it would be different. 
Because what are you going to tell everyone to sit still for a minute while I explain where you are? That doesn't work. That's why that's why decentralized command is so important on the battlefield. This is the exact reason why decentralized command is so important on the battlefield. When you centralize command, people people that actually are there that need to be able to make decisions, make things happen, can't do it. Yeah. Um, and by the way, how do you overcome a situation like this? How do you overcome a situation where, okay, you're my subordinate. Yeah. You work for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't I don't want you to be able to have the ability to fire because I'm afraid you're gonna hurt civilians How do I solve that the way to solve it is not to say no. I don't give you that authority the way I solve it is to say Okay, Dakota. Let me explain some things to you. We need to protect the civilian populace We need to make sure we don't damage any infrastructure to the best of our ability I want you to understand how strategically important that is. Do you understand? Let me put you through some scenarios. What if you were here and this happened? What would you do? What if you were here and this happened? What would you do? I train you and I build trust so that I can decentralize the command. That's how you overcome it. You don't overcome it. It's a shortcut to try and centralize, and it ends up getting people killed. 100%. All right. Going back to the book, Fox 3-1, Lieutenant Johnson finally came up on the radio. We're pinned down in a house, receiving accurate fire from the next house. We have to get out of here. He was cut off by others pushing to use the same frequency. Three or four advisors were trying to talk, stepping on each other. I could hear the strain in their voices, the lack of crisp orders, the frantic yelling of men who were pinned down. After a few minutes, Fox 3-2 Staff Sergeant Kenefick tried to pass his location on the grid to Fabio. I can't shoot back, Aaron said, because I'm pinned down. They're shooting at me from the house. It's so close. Grid. 3-2, this is 3-3, three, three, Radio Staff Sergeant Kenefick. Repeat your grid. Repeat your grid. Or you you radioed to Kenefick. Repeat yeah. your grid. Repeat your grid. So he faded as he was trying to tell you his grid. Nothing after that but static and garbled voices. That broke it for me. I had promised my team I would be there. As far as I was concerned, my command element wasn't in command. Twice I had heard Shadow say that air would be on station in 15 minutes. Nothing happened. How long do you do nothing while your friends are fighting for their lives? Fox 7, this is 3-3. Sitting here is stupid. We're going in. Rod and I were on the net with Valdez. There was no dispute among us. It was about 0600 time to move. I was the vehicle commander, so the fault lay with me for disobeying orders if I arrived in the valley and discovered that the command group had had the situation under control. I knew there was a good chance I'd be sent back to the States in disgrace. When I shouted the Askars to follow us, they looked confused. Up on the north outpost, Valdez grabbed a senior Afghan sergeant. The sergeant radioed to the Afghan drivers clustered around our truck, urging them in Pashtu to follow me. Mortar shells were falling a football field away to our west. The enemy knew our trucks were somewhere on the path, but uncertain just where. The explosions made my made the Askars jumpy. Just the same, some of them jumped into two Humvees and roared into position behind us. Rod, let's go, I said. He put it in gear. Now, by that time, you start actually going into the valley. Yeah. And as you're going in... By that time, several Askars were stumbling out of the battlefield, some bleeding, a few without their rifles, all exhausted. Where Americani, I yelled, dost, dost. The Askars pointed up toward the village. 
So, so as you're driving in, you're seeing guys fleeing the battlefield. I mean, it was like, it, it was terrible. Like as we go in, you, you're just seeing these guys come out and it's in Ramadan, so they won't eat or they won't drink any water and they're coming out of this battle and they're just like, you're not even close to the valley yet and they're coming out of this battle. They don't have any weapons on them. They're just broken. They're bloodied. They're, they're been shot. They've just, I mean, you're carrying each other and you're just like, what are we going into? <clears throat> Somewhere behind us was a U.S. Army platoon. It seemed to me to be a time for them to make a move. They were the quick reaction force, our insurance policy. Valdez was on the radio arguing with Dog 36, the quick reaction Army platoon commander. Dog 36, this is Fox 7, Valdez radio radioed you need to get in there man fox three threes to your front in a humvee drive east until you link up with him fox seven this is dog three six said the lieutenant our vehicles are too big for the mission we were driving on a footpath that was barely wide enough for our humvee valdez came up with an alternative dog three six this is fox seven i understand drive forward until you reach the afghan vehicles use them to get into the fight there are people out there dying the platoon leader said he had to wait for clearance from the talk at joyce yeah what kind of vehicles did the uh, QRF have? They were in MRAPs. Okay. God, I mean, uh, it was how, an excuse. Yeah, how how awesome would it be to have an MRAP roll into this situation? With yeah, a, and I don't think they could have. The road wouldn't too, have held up too small. Yeah, because they ended up coming in in one of those. Uh, it looks like a tank, but it's on wheels, mm-hmm. um, and it ended up flipping over off the off the bank, but. They look at the end of the day. We had a ton of Humvees. I mean, we just brought in ninety people mm-hmm. sitting right there. Mm-hmm. They could have jumped in the Humvees and came. <clears throat> the helicopter ops center called back, saying the retasking of the birds had been canceled because Lance had not called his own brigade headquarters to ask permission, and because another mission north of Ganjagal was of higher priority. So. One of the guys in the in the op center had actually said, "You know what? Screw it. I'm calling calling he for helos," and but he hadn't called the brigade and run through the proper chain of command, and they they shut him down. Yeah. <clears throat> so here we go. More than an hour into the fight, the situation was as follows: Team Monty was trapped in a house, and the U.S. and Afghan commanders were pinned down by shooters closing in on them from three sides. The north and south observation posts were under fire. The Askars were caught in the open with nowhere to hide. Rod and I hadn't reached the wash. The 132 quick reaction platoon was not quick reacting. The talk at Joyce was paralyzed, preventing artillery support, and the helicopter gunships had not arrived. It was a perfect storm. That's just um there's absolute there's nothing else that can go wrong right now. It's a perfect storm. It is the absolute perfect storm. Swenson wanted a massive artillery barrage. Because the douchemen didn't have overhead cover, artillery airbursts would send millions of lancets raining down toward them. Hundreds of shells had to shake the mountains and roll thunder down the valley. The douchemen were zealots, but they weren't crazy. Once artillery began exploding overhead, gunmen with AKs wouldn't get up and run forward in the open. 
Yet the talk refused to fire at Gondragal only a few miles from Camp Joyce. Unleasing a barrage in your own backyard wouldn't win any applause at higher headquarters. The directive from the high command was so clear. Do not employ air-to-ground or indirect fires against residential compounds defined as any structure or building known or likely to contain civilians unless the ground force commander has verified that no civilians are present. terrible and i mean you know and there's that you know that rule right there is written so impossible you know yeah. what do you do you, i mean you, the village you're getting shot at so you run through there and are you civilian or are you, you civilian? shooting at me yeah. Yeah. you know um I, I have to look do like a full review of the ROEs or this specific directive, but you know normally the self-defense thing trumps everything Well, usually and that's what I always say right I always talk about ROEs and you know ROEs will say, you know blah 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 blah, but then at the end of it it always ends it says or Hostile act hostile intent Mm Mm-hmm But it's all by interpretation. I mean that it goes back to the commanders. I mean You know I don't blame the ROE that Stanley McChrystal put in place for what happened that day. I blame the people, the leadership who was incompetent to make a decision. You know what I mean? Like, like it's like nobody wants to just own it and take accountability and take responsibility and say, you know what? I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. They want to be able to say, well, I didn't do it because, well, this is the order. Mm. Come on. Come on. You know, if you're in a leadership position, t- take take responsibility. Yeah. Um, you got to do the right thing. That's the bottom line, and that's what makes leadership hard. And sometimes the right thing is to break rules. Sometimes the right thing is to not follow orders. Sometimes orders are wrong, yeah. and you shouldn't follow them. And Napoleon said, if, you, if you're in charge and you get tasked with something that's wrong and you execute it, you're culpable. Doesn't matter if you get ordered or not. Sometimes you break the rules. Going right back to the yes man thing, right? Yeah. And I guarantee, I guarantee the intent of Stan McChrystal putting this ROE in place wasn't to deny guys that were pinned down by enemy <laughs> fire. But again, how are we communicating it? And are we putting are we putting the priorities in place correctly so that everybody knows? Yeah, I mean, you know. Um when it's put out in an email, it's kind of like it's as dangerous as you interpreting me a text. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody looks at it different. Yep. And you know what? That's why things like commander's intent are so important. So important. If I know what it is, like you're, if I know what it is that you want done, and my job is to get it done, and you give me parameters to do it within, I'll stay within those parameters, and I'll get the job done. And I'll come back to you and I'll say, hey, boss, I had, to, I had to bend the rules a little bit here, but I got the mission done. Or I might call you back and say, hey, I'm getting ready to break the rules to get the mission done. Do you want me to break them or not? Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Back to the book, Shadow, the army outpost on the southern ridge replied that the talk at Joyce said the fire mission was too close to the village. Too close to the village, Lieutenant Johnson said. If you don't give me these rounds right now, I'm gonna die. Try your best. 
shadow replied, knowing the talk wouldn't fire. Try your best. Try your best. From the tone of Shadow's voice, I knew he was on the verge of complete rage. He wanted to strangle the officers in the talk at Joyce. I felt the same way. This couldn't be happening. We were on the same side. We weren't Marines or soldiers. We weren't Americans or Askars. We were one lone group fighting desperately to stay alive. The villagers, the villagers weren't our friends. This was a war, and my team was on the verge of dying. Whose side was the talk on? Radio call after radio call, Swenson kept requesting smoke. Finally, around 0630, the talk at Joyce permitted four white phosphorus, ra- fi- white phosphorus rounds to be fired into the southeast backside of the village, too far away to conceal my team. Those were the last rounds fired during the battle. At about 0640, the talk at Joyce forbade any more artillery support, citing garbled communications, incomplete calls for fire procedures, and a lack of situational awareness on the part of those trapped in the valley. So there's the, there's the reasons from their perspective. Um, garbled communications, incomplete calls for fire procedures, and a lack of situational awareness on the part of those trapped in the valley. <clears throat> Meanwhile, during this time, you've been moving up, grabbing bodies, coming back. And here we go again. As we move forward for a third time, the talk had finally ordered the army platoon, Dog 3-2, to move forward. They pulled in behind us with the platoon leader in a Humvee with an anti-tank tow missile on the roof. The tow made no sense to me, but the truck was equipped with a 240 machine gun. Behind them were 20 U.S. soldiers and four heavily armored vehicles. You rolling with me, Lieutenant? I was confirming what I took for granted. I'll scout the route first before I bring my platoon in. The terrain may be too tough. He refused to put his soldiers into the Afghan vehicles. I could understand that. Okay, I go first, I said. You cover our six. The Afghans will be behind you. As we bounced forward, I heard Team Monty again come up on the radio. We're under fire, Lieutenant Johnson said. We're surrounded. So now you're heading back in. Yeah. Yeah, and I... um and my whole goal was just to get them, you know, was to get them to the road. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that that was their goal. If they could get to the road, they could get in the vehicles. We were good. So I was trying to push. I thought that they had took over a house, mm-hmm. right? Like, I thought they had pushed into the village and took over a Strong house. Strong pointed a house. Yeah, and that's what I thought they had done. And I lost, yeah, I lost communications with them. That's what I thought they had done. You know, when uh, Kinefic was trying to give that grid, I was trying to write it down. Because I knew if I could get that grid, I'd know where they were right. at. I could plot it. I could be there and go get them. And, um, you know, the the one part I don't talk about in there is probably the hardest part of the whole deal is, is that the first trip that I made in, I was probably 70, 60 to 70 meters from them. They're still alive.
so you're uh, in the valley now you're with a, a group of guys going back to the book here a bullet had entered Westbrook's neck near the shoulder blade and ricocheted downward a, da- a dangerous but not fatal wound Swenson applied quick clot powder and a bandage to seal off the bleeding. The fight had been raging for over 90 minutes, and the chain of command throughout Kunar province was on alert. Procedures for releasing helicopters had been unsnarled, and two OH-58 Kiowas were en route to the valley. At 0715, they had contacted Swenson. Highlander, this is Pale Horse. The PC pilot command radioed, what do you need? Pale Horse, Swenson replied, I am under heavy fire from the village and the hills to the east and on both sides. Request immediate suppression while we pull back. The Kiowa squadron had been in Kunar for 10 months. The pilots knew the terrain and the enemy habits. They intended to swoop in low and crisscrossing strafing runs, deliberately swerving and cutting back at odd angles. They didn't care whether they hit the douchemen. They wanted to force them to crouch down and cease firing. The aerial tactics would allow the command group to pull back westward to draw down under, under reduced enemy pressure. As Swenson moved, he called for a medevac. Shadow radioed back to th- that the talk wanted questions answered before calling for one. Is he army or marine, Shadow said. Swenson cursed. Major Williams was more diplomatic. This is Fox 6, Williams radioed. It doesn't matter his service. He's U.S. There was a pause. Then Shadow reluctantly radioed, repeat, talk needs to know if he's Army or Marine. It's in the regulations. Yeah, it was... um... If you get a guy calling for medevac and... You're getting asked, hey, is the person that needs, is the casualty army or Marine Corps? Yeah, and it really did matter to them. It really did matter to them. Uh, you're saying it mattered? I'm saying it to, to who was asking. They really, their decisions were based off of who it was. <sighs> All right. Um, at this point you're you're you I think you're you're going back and forth going back in the valley getting bodies helping wounded coming back out you're under fire the whole time rod is getting after it with you sometimes you have some US people with you sometimes you don't and again these are things you have to buy this book and to get these details out of it and read it so you understand the full magnitude of what we're talking about here Going back to the book, Hafez left the command group to sort itself out, helping a wounded Askar. Was headed back west to the operational release point when I had stopped them. I need you to come back in with me. I can't find them without you, I said. Hafez was married, recently. He was wounded and exhausted. He could now go home and have a life. If today is my time to die, then I die. So he's rolling with you. He, had, he rolled with me the whole time. Again, to all those uh, people out there that, well, I guess I, I, I should uh, just say, for the people out there that have a hard time understanding well, what's going on overseas, um, you know, here's an Afghan soldier that is now going to risk his life to help an American Marine go and find his friends. Yeah, because we were brothers. <clears throat> I 
going back to the book. Shortly after we headed again down the valley, we bumped into another group of wounded Askars. Rod recognized the first sergeant who was dripping blood down the right side of his trousers. He was waving his arms, begging us to stop. Four Askars hobbled over and threw themselves into the back seat, splashing blood all over the place. We drove them back to the collection point. The first sergeant was blubbering, begging us not to go back in. I was a little rough shoving him out of the truck. I was running out of time and patience. Once we dropped them off, we gunned it back down the track. We were getting to a place where we couldn't turn around and couldn't dodge and weave the arc as the RPG smoke trails came at us. We could get pretty stuck in here, Rod yelled. The truck had very little traction and absolutely no cover. Then I guess we'll die with them, I yelled back. What else could I say? We weren't going back. Rod shifted into low gear and we bounced forward. (sighs) You, I noticed this throughout the book. You have a hard time like anytime you saw wounded guys, you were like, all right, well, we got to make another trip now. We got to make another trip, even with those wounded Afghan guys. Like you want to go help your guys, but at the same time you see these guys, you're like, all right, get in the truck and we'll take these guys back. Yeah. You got a big heart, bro. <laughs> got uh, a big heart. I mean, look, you know, I didn't just lose. Um, I didn't just lose uh, four guys that day. I lost 10 guys because I lost six Afghans. I lost 10 brothers. You know what I mean? I mean, those guys were just as close to me. My Afghans were just as close to me as any Marines I ever served with. And that's why they're joining you to go back in there and fight. That, that's exa- And that's why I'm live today. I mean, that's that's the relationships that I had with them and the brotherhood that I had for them, with them, is why I'm alive today. I mean, they they are incredible human beings so you're driving around in here back to the book only rod skill at the wheel was preventing me from being hit again and again bullets make different sounds when they pass by you the cracks of bullets breaking the sound barrier mean they're high maybe five or ten feet over your head the bullets that snap close by your ears are the real killers a few losing power and slowing down made a low buzzing sound Strange though it may seem, I wasn't scared or angry. I was beyond that. I didn't think I was going to die. I knew I was dead. There wasn't anything I could do about it. I wasn't a thinking human being. I had gone elsewhere. I wasn't firing the machine gun. I was the machine gun. Rod wasn't driving the truck. Rod was the truck. I had melded with my weapon. I was no more human than a five-foot machine gun I was embracing. We were locked together, metal and flesh. Without that 50 cal, I would have quivered like the Haskars, helpless in the storm. But with that weapon, I felt transported. I had something to do until the blackness came. Yeah, I just kept, I kept, like the bullets were hitting inside the turret. They had elevation on us. And so they were hitting inside the turret. And, um... Man, you could hear them coming by. And I just, I remember sitting there. You know, because if you get down, I mean, you know, you, you know, your your instinct is to duck down the turret. Mm-hmm. But you do that, they'll overrun you. I mean, they were running at the truck. So, yeah, but you duck down, they're full sprint. 
mm-hmm. and you're never going to come back up. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And um, I just kept waiting for a bullet. I, I just knew it was just going to hit me in the face. I just kept waiting for a bullet to hit me. Lights out. Like I just, I just, there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to die. Zero. Zero doubt. But I was going to make this son of a bitches earn it. They had it to do. Jack. I wasn't paying attention to the Afghan soldiers. Rod and I planned to keep driving east until we obliterated, until we were obliterated or we found my team. Suddenly, with no warning, five or six Askars who were lying in a terrace about a hundred meters away leapt up and raced towards our truck. Wham! Was one was shot back and pitched forward. Wham! A second man went down screaming. Wham! A third, then a fourth, and a fifth. I'd never seen anything like it. Five men down in five seconds. There was so much screeching and shooting that I could couldn't pick out the location of the weapon that had shot them. To deliver such lethal grazing fire, the machine gunner must have been hidden only a few hundred meters away, with a clear line of sight in his bipod firmly anchored. Yet whoever shot those men didn't raise his gun sights and stitch me. I knew he was looking at me, but I couldn't see him. There was nothing I could do. He let me live. Not one of his rounds even struck our truck. I can't explain it. We used to call the trucks bullet magnets. Yeah, they are. I mean... It's like the ripest target, and a freak. You're the turret gunner. You're like the 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 icing on the cake. You're the ch- the cherry on the icing on the cake. Yeah, because that truck gets over. If they take the gun out, that truck doesn't come out of there. Oh. It's overran. Oh hell yeah, yeah. But you know, even though it's a bullet magnet, I mean, you know, just like right there, I think that kind of paints the picture. I mean, it's the it's the only chance you have. Right. I mean, you're you're out. I mean, that's how dialed in they are. It's it's. People, I mean, I was literally watching guys. Pe- people throw the, the term miracle around yeah. all the time. The, like the fact that you right here, there's five guys within you know spitting distance from you, and they all go down, and you're the the, the most prime target, and you, and you don't get shot, man. You, you want to talk about helpless? The most helpless feeling you got is watching guys trying to get to you and just getting mowed down. I mean, you want to talk about helpless, and you don't even know where it's coming from. I mean, you want to talk about helpless is watching another human being run directly at you to get help, and you're just watching them just go down one after the other after the other. Can't even imagine it, dude. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's, they were good that day. You get this call from Valdez. They're coming at you. I can see them closing from both sides. They're swarming you. Yeah. In front of our truck, I saw a few guys sprinting across the wash from left to right, heads low. I don't think they saw us coming up behind them or if they heard the truck engine over the din of the gunfire. They scurried too quickly for me to get off a burst. Glancing to my right, I looked smack into the eyes of five or six men in dirty man dresses crouched alongside a drainage ditch not 10 meters away. When I gaped at them, they ducked down like they were playing hide and seek. It took me a few seconds to realize that they were spreading out to seal off the open end of the horseshoe valley, zip locking the frozen Ascars inside a fire sack. Rod and I had blundered into their rear. So they were about to, they were about to surround everybody. So they, that's what they were doing. There was a trench and they were closing it. They were closing the gate. 
and and we that truck you happen to be there to be right in it damn fire sack is a is a doctrinal term actually which means you're surrounded and you, they're gonna shoot into the sack and kill everyone yeah we were bouncing over the rocks no faster than a man can run when a bearded doucheman clutching an AK leapt out of a ditch and sprinted after us like a man trying to catch his catch a bus. My gun almost wouldn't swivel low enough to shoot him. The barrel was tilted down as far as it could go. I fired into his chest and he went down like he'd hit a glass wall. A bullet doesn't blow a man back like in the movies. Either he stumbles or on or he falls dead. This man fall, fell dead. Rod was yelling at me. Maybe I was hypnotized for a second by the death. There was a guy trying to open the right door. I couldn't depress the 50 cal that low. I can't get him, I yelled. The gun won't go down low enough. It takes the brain 12 thousandths of a second to react to danger. My mind was a complete blank. I had fired so many thousands of rounds that I didn't think what I was doing. Once you've practiced emotion long enough, it becomes second nature. Some reachers researchers call it expertise induced amnesia athletes call it being in the zone I call it self-preservation I grabbed my m4 leaned out and shot the guy four or five times in the shoulder and neck it was like shooting a zombie there was no shock power in the little five five six millimeter bullets he fell to the ground I pivoted back to the 50 cal and grabbed the spade handle the weapon, my hands, and my eyes were working as a trained unit independent of my brain. Man, sight, picture, shoot. Man, sight, picture, shoot. You don't really look at the target. The enemy remains out of focus. You concentrate on the sight picture. Man, sight, picture, shoot. I hit one or two guys next to the truck, and the others ducked back into the ditch. Valdez came back on the radio. Rod, watch your front. Rod was focused on keeping traction in the loose gravel. If the truck got stuck, even for a moment, we'd be toast. He looked ahead to see a bearded, hatless man in his mid-30s dressed in a brick-red man jams with a green chest rig full of ammo running toward the truck and firing an AK at us from the hip. Hold on, homie, Rod yelled. He hit the accelerator. The truck hit the man squarely in the chest. There was a bump and then another bump under the tires. Holy shit, Rod, Rod yelled. I just ran over a guy. Back up and do it again. I had been shot in the elbow, a bleeder that did no real damage. The bone was fine. In a fight, adrenaline deadens the pain. I did a little rapping and got back to shooting. The more fucked up things got, the more Rod and I started laughing. He was staring away from RPG, streaming at us and laughing, and I was shooting the big gun and laughing. Definitely crazy, but your emotions have to go somewhere. The enemy fire slackened on us as the Kiowas darted around. They were like a steel umbrella over us. A few minutes later, Pale Horse came back on my net. 3-3 were Winchester. We'll be back in 15 mics. Winchester meant they'd expended all their ammunition. They were too light to carry much and they'd been shooting at targets wherever they looked. The firing picked up. We were again the pinata. I climbed down from the turret and talked to talk to Rod and Hafez. We had started with six ammo cans. We were now down to one. I had fired more than 2,000 rounds. Guys, we need a new gun, I said. It was three steps forward, two steps back. As we turned, I saw an Ascar free crawling feebly toward the road we stopped and i hopped out a pkm machine gun was tilling the ground around me so i dodged back and forth until i reached him one kiowa out of ammo hovered above me and distracted the enemy ignoring the rpg shells exploding in the air i turned the askar onto his back hit by three rounds in his upper chest and neck he was gurgling and drowning in his own blood i rolled him onto his side 
and he died before I could pick him up. <clears throat> yeah, like, you can see I kind of circle things that I'm gonna read. Yeah. And I just was like circling giant chunks. Yeah. To, to So people can understand what, I mean, I, I know that people aren't gonna understand really the, the kind of chronological evolution and maybe the mechanics of what was happening, but I want people at least to understand until they read this book themselves the freaking situation that you were in, which was beyond mayhem. Yeah, you know, you talk about training like to the worst case scenario. I always had done the same thing. And this was worse than any worst case scenario that I could have ever, ever dreamed up of, of ever being in. It was the worst of any situation. I could have never sit here and you said, give me the worst thing you could just come up with. And I could have never done it. I could have never, I could have never done it uh, of just... I mean, you just, I mean, it's just like, I mean, I just felt like everybody was dying. Like, I mean, it was just, I mean, there were like, literally, there were bodies everywhere. I mean, you couldn't turn around and look and there not be a body somewhere. And you just pretty much figured you were going to be joining them soon enough. No, I did. I mean, there was no doubt. There was no doubt in my mind I wasn't making it out of there. And, you know, I walked in that day, and this just shows you how ignorant I was. Like, when you talk about uh, your buddy who was kind of, like, puffed the chest up, right? Mm -hmm. That was me. Mm -hmm. I literally, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to just tell you how ignorant I was. I walked in that day, and there was not a situation that I was ever going to see that I couldn't get us out of. There wasn't one. There wasn't one. And it was like, you know, it was like God showing me just how small it was. You know, you got to take, I mean, these these Afghan soldiers, I mean, they were my buddies. You know, and part of the problem was... How long in the deployment was this? supposed to have been nine months and how all this when did this happen compared uh, to when you got there we got there in july august so, september yeah so, so this is like two, months, two or three, three months, months of deployment yeah and um part of the problem was we had just done the nato transition and they were using weapon systems that they weren't used to uh, that shoot a smaller round yeah yeah a lot but they weren't used to these weapons mm-hmm. they weren't even used to m4s mm-hmm. i mean and M4s are so much more fickle. M16s, M16s. M16s are, well, even more so than an M4. M16s yeah. are so much more fickle than an AK. They must have been cursing them, damn it, oh, M16s. Oh, they they were, I mean, they were, oh yeah, I mean, they, you know, they, they would have something go wrong and they would just drop the magazine. I mean, they, I mean, they would just, Yeah. So there was so, like, like I'm telling you, if you say everything, like we had just, so we just hit Ramadan, so none of them mm. were drinking water, none of them were eating. We had just, I mean, you look at every factor to this, it was the perfect storm. And we had just transitioned. This is the first mission, first or second mission that we had ever went on with all NATO weapons. I mean, you look at all these factors, and it was, it was perfect. Mm-hmm. Had you ever worked with the 
QRF before? Have you ever uh, done an not, op with them? Not that one. I was used to the ones you know up near yeah. where we were at. But you hadn't done no interoperability with those guys before. No, and uh, they got shut down. So after the talk learned that it was Marines, they got shut down. All support stopped. All support stopped. Sometimes I got nothing to say, and that's one of them. I yeah. can't even comprehend that. Yeah. All right, we're going back to the book. We turned left out of the wash onto the narrow track back to the casualty collection point. I looked around for Major Williams. He was sitting off to one side, wounded and in shock. There were four or five vehicles and at least 20 Ascars milling around. These were our Afghans. We had come down from Monty together. I glanced, hopefully, from the group from group to group. Hafez was asking if they'd seen Lieutenant Johnson. They say Lieutenant is back in Ganjagal, Hafez said. The team didn't make it out. Shit. Somewhere farther up the wash, my team was fighting to stay alive. I'd promised to get them and Rod, and I had the only gun truck willing to and able to go in. I climbed down from the turret and ran over to the Ascar. He'd taken a bullet in the thigh and he was slowly bleeding out. I kept a stack of tourniquets in my med pack and knew how to apply them. I wrapped the tourniquet around his thigh and in my frustration I twisted it extra tight and he screamed. Hafez, tell him to shut up, I said. Hurting is better than dying. If you're a grunt, you'll come face to face with horrendous gore. You have to steel yourself to seeing mangled bodies and smelling blood. Doctors and nurses cope with screaming and suffering every day. I had dressed out dozens of deer. You learn to disassociate from the task when you're pulling out warm guts or cutting off slabs of dripping meat with the blood sticking to your hands. You went through something like 15 tourniquets? Yeah, at least. Quite a few vials of morphine. Um, a couple need, needle decompressions, um, MPAs, quite a few MPAs, nasals. <sighs> the quiet, the Kiowas had rearmed and come back on station, directing us toward another wounded. Like it or not, we had been pressed into ambulance business. The Kiowa commanded by Chief Warrant Officer Yasserian Solano. A good name for a guy in a crazy war had been a marine grunt before becoming an army pilot. His bird was easy to talk to, and he directed me where to go, sometimes hovering so low I could just about reach up and touch his skids. He was covering my rear area when I got out of the truck. The pilots were fearless. Knowing my team was lost, they were running search patterns 20 feet off the ground so they could identify each body. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and he did that, like, you know, they were, so his commander, he was having problems with his commander, and the guy who was leading those birds, you know, because they fly in two birds, mm -hmm. and uh, so the, but when I told him that it was Marines missing, like, he dropped down and, and covered me the whole time. You, you ever meet him? Yeah, yeah. Damn. Yeah, he's incredible. I, I just seen him, um seen him like around Thanksgiving mm -hmm. yeah he, he is an incredible human being the, just so everyone knows like just because you're in a helicopter does not make you safe at all 
Uh, Especially uh, a Kiowa. Like maybe you're a little bit safer in Apache because you got some armor. I don't know how much how much armor is in a Kiowa. None. Zero, right? They yeah. look like little. And I don't know how many. Uh, his bird was shot to shit. No kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was shot to pieces. I climbed up a terrace wall and followed the contours of the field around a corner to find a body lying face down. On the man's hands were green gloves with the fingers cut. I knew before I even rolled him over that it was Dad Ali, my closest Afghan friend. He was due to take leave in a few weeks. He had left on bad terms with his mother, who was sure he would be killed. Finally, after two years, she had relented and invited him back to the farm for a visit. He'd been hit in the face. When I looked at his dull eyes, I lost my concentration and knelt there for a moment, oblivious. He was a little guy too small for his body armor. He and I had rigged up two tourniquets to hold the body armor in place close to his chest. I knelt down to untie the tourniquets. I needed them for other guys, and I needed to get the heavy armor off him so I could carry him to the truck. I felt a tap as something hit my left shoulder. It didn't register at first. It was like I had been hit with a light stone. I glanced up to see a tough-looking Afghan with a long black beard gla glaring down at me. He was wearing a dirty gray man dress, a flak jacket, and an Afghan army helmet. He was pointing an AK at my head, gesturing for me to stand up. In broken English, he was telling me to drop my rifle. Come, he said, waving the barrel of his AK in my face. I couldn't believe that I'd screwed up so badly. All I could think of was that my head would be sawed off and held up on TV. No way. I'd die right where I was right now. I had been dead for a few hours anyways. The borrowed time was up, that's all. My rifle was resting on my left thigh pointing in his direction. The stubby grenade launcher was attached to the underside of the barrel. I raised one arm like I was going to surrender and pulled the trigger of the launcher with my free thumb. The 40 millimeter grenade shot forward two feet to his armored vest. It didn't explode. Instead, it knocked him back, stunned him with the, with the breath, slammed out of him. He staggered back and fell on his side. For a few seconds, I thought the blow had killed him. No such luck. I pushed myself erect. As I pushed myself erect, he drew in a big breath and stirred. I kicked at his face, losing my balance and falling on top of him. We were both on the ground wrestling. Afghan tribesmen have legs like steel from climbing mountains all day, all their lives, so I had to keep his legs off me. I pinned his elbows and blocked his reach for his AK. I was pushing my helmeted head into his chest so he couldn't gouge at my eyes. Any second, I figured that grenade would explode and both of us could stop worrying about any of this. I pawed the ground with my right hand and found a rock the size of a baseball. I clutched it and swung by blindly at his face. The blow stunned him. Before he could recover, I pushed off of his chest, lifted the rock high in my right fist, and smashed it down like a hammer breaking his front teeth. He looked me in the eyes, the fight knocked out of him, his head not moving. We both knew it was over. I drew back my arm and drove the stone down, crushing his left cheekbone. He went limp. I pushed up on my knees, and I hit him with more force. The blow caved in the left side of his forehead. I smashed his face again and again, driven by pure animal rage.
that's close combat obviously when you're killing another human being with a rock yeah yeah it's real um you know i just i just remember his face you know and uh i mean look i let me just state this up front first off i feel no remorse at all um but I think it was at it was at that at that point to where it humanized it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like it humanized the fact of taking another person's life. Like I would remember the look in his eyes when he knew he was going to die. And at that point, like you know, I, obviously I didn't think of it then. But you know, when I still see that face, I still think about you know he was a father. There was somebody at home that wanted him to come home just as bad as somebody wanted me to come home. Um, You know, whether you agree with his beliefs or not, people don't agree with their beliefs, you know. But at the end of the day, he believed in his beliefs just as much as I did. Um, We're both human beings. We're both fighting for a cause that neither one of us can see, that we both just believe in. Um, And it had to be one of us. And my guess is, and you can, maybe I'm wrong, but my guess is the reason he didn't just straight kill you yeah. is because he had you, he had the drop on you. Yeah. And, and, and having you as a trophy in an orange jumpsuit would have been much more impactful for him and their cause. Yeah, I mean, he could have easily, um, it would have took him no time to get me across the border. We were right on the border. That's what he would have done. He would have took me across the border. He would have sold me. Um, and he would have been a hero. He'd probably been promoted in whatever you know network he was in. I mean, he would have been the man, and, um, and I, I was worth a lot more to him alive than I was yeah. dead. Yeah. And you know, but but then on the backside, I mean, I've questioned it so many times. Like, you know, was it that, or was it that maybe he, maybe he was trying to bluff me? He didn't have bullets. I mean, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know. Like, and you know, th- there's so many times in this whole battle that I just wonder, like, like why, why, why not me? You know, uh, I mean, war, and I guess you could apply this to all life, but it becomes very clear in war. It's like inches, millimeters. You know, what, what, sure, you could say you got missed by, by a round, by a foot, a couple inches, but when you take that back to a person's weapon, you got missed by a millimeter, a, millimeter. a meter of aim. That's you, what it is. You could have got, you, you could have got missed by a gust of wind. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Literally, you could have, you could have been missed by the wind picking up. So while all that's going on, back to the book. Highlander was the radio call sign for Captain Swenson. He was trying to gather reinforcements. He pulled aside the lieutenant in charge of the quick reaction platoon. Mount up, Swenson, and told him, "You're no help back here. We need your firepower." I can't, Lieutenant said. The talk says we're to cover the vehicles. Swenson grabbed the lieutenant's 50-watt radio and called the Joyce. The talk told the platoon to move into the valley. Swenson, Fabio, Rod, and Hafez then hopped into an undamaged Humvee to drive back in. But the platoon did not follow. Instead, the platoon leader again called back to Joyce and somehow received permission to remain in the rear out of the fight. Yeah, it was frustrating. It was frustrating. It was frustrating that 
You know, and I, I, I met that guy a few years ago. We ran into We were in the same meeting. Um, it was frustrating. Every bit of it was frustrating. It was so, I mean, every single bit of it was unnecess- unnecessary and frustrating. back to the book I started the day with 14 or 16 tourniquets I used them all I put four on one guy who'd lost his left arm and his left leg below the knee he survived one Askar shot in the neck sounded like he was slurping through a straw there was nothing I could do except listen to him strangled to death At one point, two F-15s roared low through the valley, opening their afterburners to create a hell of a lion's roar. The pilots wouldn't drop any bombs. Yeah, I mean, you know, usually, but but at this point, you know, the only show of force ever works is, is, I mean, they had so much momentum at this time. I mean, it was like momentum, right? Mm-hmm. So it started out as fighters, like as fighters that came across the border. And then what it turned into was when they seen that we weren't getting the support and when we, they seen that we weren't getting control of the situation and fires weren't coming. They escalated and they gained momentum. Well, everybody else joined in. You take, the, so you had the guys that showed up to fight and then you have the opportunists of the villagers that turn into fighters instantly because they have the upper hand. And so they start gaining momentum of more people fighting you every single minute. Because all they got to do is pick up the gun off the dead person. You know what I mean? Uh, literally. I mean, there were literally women running through uh, the village with, uh, like, these bowls. And, you know, you look at them, you know, you, well, uh, you know, she's just a woman with a bowl running. Rocket comes in. She drops the bowl, and it's full of grenades and ammunition. The women were running up and re- resupplying all these guys. The Kiowas, Kiowas were still supporting you. Back to the book. Inside the villages, the army pilots ran astonishing risks to find my team. A Kiowa would swoop down toward the compound, flare back at rooftop le- level, and putter down the alleyways at 20 miles an hour, allowing the pilots to peer into every backyard and into every window. As the day grew hotter, we gradually cleared the valley of casualties. Over 30 wounded or dead were evacuated. We watched as Solano, the lead pilot, brought his Kiowa down to a few feet above a trench and hovered there. Highlander, we spotted five bodies. I'd heard all I needed. I jumped out the door and sprinted across the field to the right, opening some distance before Swenson yelled at me. I ignored him, knowing he'd be right behind me. A PKM shifted shifted to me when I was halfway across the terrace. I hopped over a terrace wall and fell into a deep, well-constructed trench. I landed next to Gunny Johnson, and my heart stopped. He was lying on his back with his arms outspread, his eyes open, but never to see anything again on this earth. A few feet further on, I came across the body of an Afghan interpreter who had traveled with our team. I felt sick to my stomach. I knew what I would see next. Lieutenant Johnson lay on his back with his eyes closed. 
He looked peaceful despite the entry wounds in his right shoulder. Doc Layton lay on top of him with medical supplies scattered around. I rolled him over. Doc had taken a three-round burst in the right cheek. Off to the right, Staff Sergeant Kenefick was lying face down, his GPS with a busted screen clenched in his left hand. His mouth was open and full of dirt. I think he was yelling out his grid location, the numbers I heard over the radio four hours earlier when he was shot in the back of his head. The team was wiped out. Their bodies were stiff and cold. Most of their gear was gone, weapons, helmets, radios. The 240 machine gun was missing, but Lieutenant Johnson's pack was filled with link ammo. No one had fired the gun I was supposed to be carrying. I had never believed it would end like this. My mind refused to accept what I was seeing. Hour after hour, I had imagined them holed up inside a stone house shielded from RPG blasts, exchanging gunfire with the douchemen who, were, who knew better than to rush them. Swenson was standing above the trench. We were taking random incoming, and he was watching for movement among the houses. He talked into his radio for a few seconds, then bent down and picked up some of the team's gear. He didn't say a word. He left me alone with them. I hoisted the staff sergeant over my right shoulder. He was heavy, and I fell once. He landed on top of me. I got up and carried him to an Afghan truck, carefully tucking him into the open bed. I stood there for a minute, suddenly beat. As I turned away from the truck, Hafez put his hand on my shoulder. The Askars say you carried out their dead. Now they want to help you. Five or six of us returned to the trench while the damn PKM kept shooting at us. I carried Gunny Johnson back. The Askars took Lieutenant Johnson and Doc Layton. Swenson lugged back the rest of the equipment. After six hours, it was over, and I felt empty as a balloon without air. Hafez took me aside. They've gone to a better place, he said. Don't cry. The Askars will take it as weakness. No way I was going to cry, but at that moment, I didn't feel like killing anyone either. I wasn't angry or bitter, just deflated and exhausted as though I had run a marathon and couldn't remember why I wanted to do it. I was too damn tired to stand. Still taking fire, we left the valley in a convoy of about four trucks. Rod stopped near the casualty collection point where we talked with Captain Kaplan and, Captain and Corporal Norman who had walked down from their observation posts. Staff Sergeants Valdez and Miller radio that they were coming down from their perch too. Everyone was accounted for. We had shuttled in and out of the valley five, six, or seven times that morning, depending on which one of us you asked. It was all a fog. No senior American officer or pursuit force had come forward from Camp Joyce. Captain Swenson said he would try to wrap things up. Hafez and I climbed into the back of an Afghan truck carrying my dead brothers. I held Staff Sergeant Kenefick with my left hand, and Lieutenant Johnson rested on my right arm. 
as we bounced down the track, we passed villagers returning to Ganjagal. Some started to laugh, pointing at my dead friends. I reached for my rifle. Don't, Hafez said, holding my arm. Not worth it. When we arrived back at Camp Joyce, I walked into the battalion aid station to get body bags. Major Williams rushed up and clutched at my body armor, telling me they're not all dead, not all of them. They're all dead, I said, removing his hand. I walked outside where my friend Sergeant Charles Bocus was waiting. Bocus said, I'll give you a hand. We walked back to the bodies. Sergeant Major Jimmy Carbello, the top enlisted man at Joyce, hastened up and put his hands firmly on my shoulders trying to steer me away. You don't have to do this, devil dog. My guys will make sure it's done right. That wasn't how to end it. If I had died, I'd want Lieutenant Johnson and Staff Sergeant Kennefect to put me in the bag. I'll finish it, I said. Bocus and I carried the bodies back next to the freezers, take off their battle gear, and dig through their pockets, marking items for shipment to their families. I take a chevron from Staff Sergeant Kennefick and attach it to my dog tags. Funny, we had started out not liking each other a thousand years ago. We clean them up as best we can, wiping the blood and dirt off their faces, taking off their field gear, straightening out their camouflage uniforms, and placing each in a black body bag. We mark the name at the head, drape an American flag over each bag, bow our heads in prayer, and drive them out to the helo pad. Ganjagal was one of the deadliest small arms battles of the Afghanistan war. We lost five advisors, in addition to Team Monty, Army Sergeant First Class Westbrook had died of his wounds. Eight Askars were killed and 13 seriously wounded by rifle, machine gun, and RPG fire. Enemy losses to small arms were probably of a similar number. There were no IEDs, no bombs, and very few artillery shells. Bullets caused most of the casualties. Ganjagal was a mountain fight from an earlier century. And... It's a fight from an earlier century. But, uh, but some things don't change. That's a fact. Yeah, it was, uh, 
gosh. You know, I, I say it, and I don't think people understand it, but, you know, I might have not physically died that day, but I, I died right there next to him. I mean, you talk about, you know, I mean, it's one thing to lose one person, but everybody, I mean, it's, uh, it, I mean, I mean, that's the worst case scenario. You're living it. You know, I mean, you're literally, you don't even have anybody from your own team to put your dead on the bird. You know, and you know. How old are you at this point? 21. 21 years old. 21. 21. You know, and I, I don't know if it talks about it in the book, you know. After I did that with my teammates, I went straight from there and I went to um, so our, the Afghan side. And I did it with all their guys, too. And usually what they do with their guys is they just call the families and they got so many days to come get them. And I wasn't allowing that. I went back and I took body bags up there and we gave them the exact same respect that we gave my guys. And we put them in the freezers until their families came and got them. And, um, you know, I didn't go, I didn't go start worrying about my stuff until we had taken care of all the, all the guys, you know. And it's just, it was, it was a long day. It was a long day. And, I mean, you, you do, you, you're just like, okay, you still have a job to do. Yeah, so, I don't know if it talks about it in there, but they, you know, they tried to put me on the, the helicopter with them to go back to uh, Bagram, and then wanted me to fly home to do the ramp ceremonies and wanted me to fly home with mm -hmm. them. And I actually put them on there, and I told them I would be right back. And I knew those birds had to take off because they weren't the PJs weren't going to sit on the flight line very long. And I I just made sure that I knew that they took off before I got around anybody else because I mean they were dead. I mean I still had guys that still needed me, and they didn't need me anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I just. You know, I knew my Afghan soldiers needed me. They needed to see that, that they weren't alone. They needed to see that, that we're in this together, mm -hmm. you know. And that was what, that was what mattered to me, what the guys I still had left. How did the Afghan, your Afghan soldiers respond to this whole situation? You know, sometimes in Iraq, there'd be a, a mass casualty like this, and we'd lose a whole, there was actually in Ramadi, we lost a whole battalion they all, they all left. Yeah, they quit. Yeah. What were your guys, did, did, how did it affect them? I mean, they stuck it out. You know, they stuck it out. And, um, they did. I mean, I'm telling you, they, they are some of the most incredible human beings I've ever seen. You know, we come in and deploy. We're there for a certain amount of time. They live it forever. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, th- they responded. I mean, they, you know, they, they got their shit together, um, and, I mean, we were back in the fight three days later. You know, and they don't get they don't get the resp- they don't get the support we do. You know, they don't get. I mean, they don't get anything we get. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and it's just, you know, but we but we stuck together. You know, they helped me. They helped me get through it. Um, and I hope I helped them. But I think the most incredible thing was it was at that point that that they brought me into their. I was accepted as one of them. You were one of them, yeah. And that was probably the most rewarding piece of it to me, you know, was that I, I had finally proven myself to them that, that I was one of them. And deployment wasn't over yet. And, you know, there was more fighting to be done. Going back to the book, Army an army convoy had been ambushed north of Monty. Lieutenant Kerr and Captain Bryant, the company commander, were on their way to assist. I looked at Colonel Yu, who nodded in agreement. Minutes later, Yu, Bacchus, Staff Sergeant Richards, and some of the colonel's guys that came with him, a dozen Askars, and I were headed out the gate. And basically what you run into is there's a... A, a huge kind of what did somebody hit an IED? Is that what had happened? Or was no, it they ambushed ambush? them on the side of this, and they what they done? They, they blew the jingo trucks up and blocked the road so that you know they intertwined those jingo trucks in between the U.S. convoy, and it's so stupid. Mm-hmm. And so the jingo truck is blown up and it's blocking the road. So guess what happens to the rest of them? They're all sitting, and you can't go around it because it's about a 250 foot drop off into the Kunar River on the side so they're stuck on the side of this and I've been listening to it on the radio for a long time and I knew they were going to get slaughtered I knew that you weren't just going to sit there and they had buttoned up Mm. so that's what you were talking about earlier you button up and you wait well now they're going to maneuver on you and that's what they were doing and that's what they were doing so the guys in the jingo trucks had jumped out and uh, I kept I kept asking over the radio you know because I could monitor and I kept asking over the radio, and I could see the smoke from where I was at. And I kept asking over the radio as a clip platoon, and I kept uh, combat logistics platoon, and I kept asking over the radio, how many rounds have you fired? Because I was afraid they were going to get low on ammo. Zero. Damn. So that's when you rolled out. You get out there, and... Um, this is three days after Ganjagal. Damn. PKMs and AKs were hammering down on this mess with little return fire. It would be crazy to drive into that tangle of vehicles. Is it Bocus or Bacchus? Bocus, yeah. Bocus. Bocus was on the Mark 19 on our truck. He couldn't shoot because of the angles of fire. Richard stayed in the driver's seat while I advanced on foot by bounds into the wreckage. Our Askars ran forward with us, but their light M16s didn't impress the Taliban machine gun crew. I was quickly pinned behind a disabled truck. Looking up, I could see the PKM was shooting from a thick stone house 200 meters upslope. I excited to have a target so close, I fired about five shells from my grenade launcher before my common sense kicked in. What am I doing? I thought I'm outmatched by a machine gun, but there's an army Humvee sitting next to me with no one in the 50 cal turret. You run over there, man, you're 50 cal, I yelled. Where logistics came the muffled reply. We don't fight. Some supply guys can't wait to get into the action, but not this gang. I wasn't worried, though. Wild man Kerr would soon have air on station. 
bodies were scattered all over the road all civilians lying face down next to me alongside the army truck was a skinny teenager in a t-shirt bleeding from shrapnel in his chest and his left arm he was a pathetic sight sprawled on his back in his filthy brown shorts an orange tipped needle protruding from above his heart and a plastic stopper shoved above his left nostril he didn't weigh as much as I ate in a day his hands and feet were uglier than the dirt from his efforts to crawl out of the line of fire he wasn't old enough to grow a beard but he had a full shock of black hair not a bad-looking kid once he was cleaned up at the aid station and had some ice cream he'd be okay I felt good in fact I was pumped I'd applied dozens of tourniquets but this was the first time I had smelt death hiss out and that's because you needled him down and I didn't cover that part. He had a sucking chest wound, and you, and you, you gave him a decompression. Yeah. I had saved a human being, a poor scrawny kid eking out a living by driving a banged-up truck past known ambush sites. Would he, even, would he eventually join the Taliban and betray an American convoy? I had no idea. Sure, some of the villagers at Ganjagal had been real pricks, but why should I hold it against this kid? I ran back down the road, hoisting up another wounded truck driver and carried him back. Then I stopped to check on the skinny kid. I wanted to pat him on the shoulder to make myself feel good for my supposedly wonderful deed. Only he was dead. He had bled to death from the wound to his left arm. The crew in the army truck had let him bleed out not five feet away because he was an Afghan and they were afraid. Damn it. The Afghan drivers were all huddled together in a ditch by the river. The ambush had been sprung about 90 minutes earlier. By now, they had pissed themselves dry and had nowhere to go. I banged my rifle on... I banged my rifle butt on an army truck, yelling to the soldiers to open up. At least give me some water for those poor bastards, I shouted. A sheepish medic got out of the truck with several b bottles of water and his med pack and ran over the ditch. I knelt there looking at the blood-stained stains from the kid right beside the truck door i banged on the steel door again it opened a crack fuck you i said to the captain inside as the traffic jam was sorted out colonel you and i walked back to our home v the dead kid kid lay on the hood and rather than ride to base with a corpse between us we wedged the body in the trunk Sometimes you laugh, sometimes you want to cry. Before dropping a shell down a mortar tube, the gunner levels the bubbles on his sight. If he loses the bubbles, then the tube is pointed at a crazy angle. After Ganjagal, I was losing the bubble. So investigations take place there's actually you know accusations and excuses and one of the terms that that was in there that was that there was it was being said that there was poor battle management yeah and you're talking to a psychologist on site at this time and you know that's some of the support you were talking about that we might have that mm -hmm. a, an afghan kid in the afghan army might not have and it was a feat was it a female yeah Colonel, uh, captain katie cop and she was making some assessments yeah back to the book it's true i didn't feel connected with others the Askars were smoking hash, jabbering on their cell phones, and wandering around in flip-flops. The American soldiers were playing video games, stuffing themselves at dinner, and laughing too loudly at nothing. We weren't fighting a war. We were holding a few acres of dirt while the war swirled around outside our barbed wire. There were douchemen in every valley. 
drink tea with the villagers, pay $40 for a chicken. We were in Kumar to fight. Let's get it on. That was my attitude. The psychologist insisted that I go back to the States for treatment. No thanks. As a captain, she had the rank to make a recommendation stick, but she wanted my agreement. So she challenged me. We would play a game of ping pong. If I won, I could stay. I lost by one point. She was very good, and she really was worried about me and cared about me. I knew that. It was my time to go home. A ping pong game? Was she like a legit ping pong player? <clears throat> no, I thought I had her. Um, <laughs> you know, it was the only... You know, it was either... You know, I... I um, it was probably best I went home. Uh, I would say if it wasn't, if I didn't go home, I, I would have never came home. Um, you know, I was just getting wound tighter and tighter. I mean, I was, you couldn't tell me, you couldn't tell me I was not, I wasn't. I wasn't command like you couldn't you couldn't tell me what to do. You were out of control. I was I was out of control. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I wasn't doing anything any uh, nothing, you know, immorally unethical, right? right? Like nothing I was doing my job, but as far as like commanding me, uh, you couldn't uh, uh, you you were going to do what you were going to do. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, you know, I was at the point to where I had no <clears throat> I had no uh I didn't trust my command. I didn't trust anybody. I didn't trust anybody was going to, I mean, it was, I I was a one, you know, not a one man. I was a three man operation. Right. I mean, I was a, but I was a one man, I was a one man wrecking crew. Right. Like I was, I mean, I was going to do, you weren't going to tell me anything. I mean, Mm -hmm. there was, it it, it was pretty bad. I mean, I was fighting, you know, fist fighting. Uh, you know, how much longer? How much longer was it that you actually lost the ping pong match and got sent home? I lost it right um, a couple of days before Thanksgiving. Okay, so it was like you were you were there for another. What's Thanksgiving? No, end and, end of yes, and end we of November. and we fought our ass off that whole time. The whole time it was, it was we fought our asses off almost every single day, and sometimes three and four times a day. Well, that momentum that you talked about in the valley. They built it. It keeps coming, right? It keeps coming because right after that, they overrun Keating. Right after, I mean, it's all that, all of it. You know, they just built so much momentum, and they were hammering us. I mean, hammering us every day. And, um, you know, it was was pretty bad. So you get sent home. Here we go, back to the book. When I got home in December, I felt like I landed on the moon. Everyone around me was excited about football, Christmas, and other normal things. I was looking at the clapboard houses and the cars thinking, man, that's so flimsy. They wouldn't give cover worth shit in a firefight. It was an exposed feeling. And where were my machine guns? I found my old pistol and kept it around like a rabbit's foot, but I missed my 240s and my 50 cals, something awful. It seems weird, I'm sure, but I really just wasn't buying that there wasn't some enemy about to come over the green hills. And I felt so unprepared. I wouldn't be any good to protect anybody. 
I was soon sent off to Fort Thomas, Kentucky for PTSD therapy. Maybe that would settle me down and let me get some sleep and stop feeling so depressed and angry at every little thing. Some guys really go nuts when they come back, and I wasn't in danger of that, but I could feel the kind of crazy things that maybe got the better of them. You're over there long enough and under such constant battle stress that it resets all your settings the way, way into the red. And they're very hard to set back. The main thing knowing was that I didn't get my friends out as I had promised. I'd spent a good part of my 21 years being pretty critical of other people who failed at their responsibilities. And now it was all coming back on me in a big dump truck. Every day the psychologist urged us to step back and identify why we were experiencing negative emotions. In other words, take a minute to really be conscious of the emotion instead of just letting it seep in. Don't let your mind stay in neutral. Watch your thoughts. And by the way, I'm hitting this stuff pretty hard because a lot of people that listen to this podcast yeah. are, are, are thinking these things right here. But I think that's an important part. Don't let your mind stay in neutral. Watch your thoughts. Refusing to get out of bed or go to work or smile at others are all decisions find the reasons those decisions and turn negative feelings into positive actions It's not enough to identify why you're feeling bad It's about having the character to do something positive to take up that space don't wallow in your misery Which is just selfish childish self-absorption It was all good stuff all I ever need is a good operating manual So you're getting some good instructions. Yeah no, it was, you know, I can't say that the the PTSD center helped me, but what it did is it educated me. It educated me on why I was feeling the way I was and what it was. And then, therefore, that helped me deal with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it it kind of like, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know kind of like how you know a diet that works for you. Mm. You know, like you can look in the mirror, or you how you feel after you eat it, right? Yep. It's kind of the same thing. Like it, it, it educates you on why your body's doing this or why you're having this reaction, you know, and and that it's normal and it's just, you know, and this is why it's doing it and this is how you help counter it, right? And that was kind of <clears throat> that was kind of what it, it did for me. It didn't. I don't think it really. It didn't. It didn't fix anything. It just educated me on what the problem was. So you could start to identify the problem. Yeah. So I could identify the problem. I could identify why I was feeling this way. And then, you know, I could make decisions based of, of how I could. Was the, when you look at the root of that problem, Yeah. was it that feeling of like, hey, the, the, the promise that you made was I'll get you guys out? And- no, I mean, the, no, I mean, the facts of the facts are like here. Here's I get so frustrated with people who want to like, uh, like I'm, I'm a factual guy. Like, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm everything to me is black and white and and I'm, I'm a fact based. Like I, I went in that day to go get my teammates out. I failed. I failed. There's no, you can't jump around it. You can't, you can't ignore the facts of what happened. I failed. I failed miserably. And so, you know, you, you, if you tell you, if I tell myself I didn't fail, I lie, I'm lying to myself. So for me, you know, um, I failed. I was tested and I failed. And now I have to figure out what to do with that. 
and that's part of it. You know, and, and that and that's why I get so upset about like you know the counselors or whatever, right? It's no, well, you didn't fail. No, no, no. Like well, as soon as they say that to me, I, you, I'm done. I'm done because no, the, that's I'm not gonna lie to myself. I failed, and now I need to deal with it. I need to deal with it. You know, I I, I can't lie. And and that's, and I mean, look, I mean, it's. <clears throat> I always say the equivalent to try to make people understand like how to how I feel about it in the situation is it would be like you inside of a house and your family's there and the house catches on fire and you end up getting out thinking that maybe they're all out and you can't get back in there and they all burn to death that's kind of the equivalent of it and you know, so I just have to deal with it. And, and you know, <clears throat> I deal with it the best I can every day. I, I learn from it. I try to turn it into something good. But at the end of the day, I still failed. And, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. Going back to the book, man. After my two months at the clinic, my my enlistment term was, in fact, coming to an end. It didn't take a genius to see it. I'd be end. I'd end up behind a desk. So I chose not to re-enlist. I love the core, so it hurt. Before joining the core, I had three concussions, mononucleosis, and an operation on my right knee. When I mustered out four years later, I'd added two operations on my right hand, a right rotor, rotator cuff operation, a fourth concussion from an RPG, a dislocated shoulder, and two herniated discs from clumsily lifting the dead and wounded. One vertebrae had given way in Ganjagal when I picked up an Ascar and slipped in the bloody mud under him. I have no idea when the second vertebrae went out during the battle. I had that nick in my arm from a bullet or shrapnel, but that hadn't been anything. I was in deep, decent shape for construction work, I figured. After the PTSD clinic, I returned to Kentucky. It was the winter of 2010, and I warmed myself up by slipping back into hard drinking each night. I hadn't seen an active duty grunt in months. Fabio and Rodriguez Chavez were due to receive the Navy, Navy crosses at the Marine Corps base in Quantico, but I couldn't get enough time off to fly back east. Were you working construction at this point? Yeah. And your boys are getting Navy crosses. You can't get time off from work. Swenson and I had been recommended for the Medal of Honor. We knew, that, no, we knew though, that the award was usually downgraded upon review. When I drank, which was too much, I'd laugh at the absur absurdity. I had screwed up big time. My achievement was losing my brothers. The Marine Corps would come to its senses and I'd never hear another word from another devil dog. I had no idea what was in front of me and I didn't care. I couldn't take a walk turn on the TV or read a book to distract my mind the emptiness of my life was the dark all around me with nothing to see in any direction 
four years ago I'd left the farm for an adventure and a new beginning the core had shaped me and I had arrived in Afghanistan confident I'd do well in combat sure enough up at Monty I had emerged as the young gun every day brought fun and danger against the backdrop of spectacular mountains it was fun stuff shooting thousands of rounds not losing many people and seeing the damage you inflicted there was no weapon I couldn't handle and my team trusted me to get them out of any hot spot my cockiness put us in but when it counted most I wasn't with them they weren't trained to do my job gunny Johnson didn't spend every day behind a 240 Staff, Staff Sergeant Kennefick wasn't comfortable with weapons or angles of fire. Doc Layton wasn't a fighter, and Lieutenant Johnson didn't adjust fire missions. We aren't worried. We know you'll get us out if anything goes bad, Meyer. Well, I didn't, Lieutenant. I was a load of worthless shit. Not there when you needed me. Around 3 in the morning, I pulled my truck into the driveway of a shop owned by my high school friend Derek Yates and cut the engine. I turned on the cab light and fished out my cell phone. It wasn't right to burden my dad, but I wanted to connect one last time with someone. I pecked out a text message to my friends, Ann and Toby. They had known me since I was a toddler, but they didn't know me that well, did they? Here I was, back where I had started, with an aluminum bracelet with two names on each wrist. That's what I had done with my life. Lost four brothers. I can't do it anymore. I typed I reached into the glove compartment where I kept my Glock I always kept a full magazine with a round chambered in the pistol a Glock doesn't have a safety you pull the trigger and the weapon fires I stuck the gun to my head and squeeze the trigger. Click. Nothing. Nada. No round in the chamber. As you can imagine, I sat there quite sobered up and in double shock. Suicide is terminal self-revulsion. I was mixed up, but I knew my team would be disappointed in me. Staff Sergeant Kennefeck would give me hell, which is where I would be. Bad ending. That was not going to happen. But who had unloaded my pistol? Right on the spot, I knew who had done it. Have I ever talked to that person about it? No. I put away the pistol and drove home. That night, I experienced no sudden change of direction in my life. I didn't know where I was headed in the future, but I knew I, I knew quitting wasn't right.
Not that night. Not ever. You know, I I had never told, uh, I had never told anybody about that night until it was published in the book, and uh, I just, <clears throat> you know, I just felt like it was important to the story because I didn't want people to read the story and then just think that it was all okay when I came home. I didn't want to give them that perspective. And there's so many guys out there that write these books of the crazy shit that they do, but they never talk about what, what that crazy shit does to them. Yeah. They never talk about that. And so what happens is, is people read that and they're like, holy shit, that's, that's crazy. I could never do that because I deal with problems. And it's like, yeah, we all do. And, you know, I had to put it into, I wanted people to know that I'm just a human. I'm no different than them. And I, I felt like that I couldn't put in the, the, if you want to call it good stuff, and not put in the bad stuff. It's... I'm sure there's some psychologist that could figure something out about this, but you got to the point, right? And you made the decision clearly. Yeah. And you came out the other side by the grace of God and whoever knew you well enough to to figure out that they needed to make sure you didn't have a loaded gun. But that's a message for anybody that feels like they're in the same situation you felt like you were in, which is that there's not, not going to get any better. Is like, okay, come out the other side, man. Come out the other side. And it was like, I mean, like you said, it's not a sudden change in, in direction, but you, but you knew no, I, uh, that you couldn't quit. I always like to say that, you know, sometimes you find yourself in the middle of nowhere and sometimes in the middle of nowhere you find yourself. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I mean, I had no idea where my life was going. I made a deal with myself, you know. <clears throat> I had sat there and uh, I had said, if I'm going to keep living this life this way, rack, rack it back and get over with. But I said, if I ever put the car in drive, I'll never look back. And I sit there, I'm not going to lie to you, I'd probably sit there for five, ten minutes. And I had done it at, at my buddy's shop because I knew he'd be there at eight o'clock in the morning and he could just find me. And uh, I put it in drive and I just, I never looked back, you know. I, I, you know, and it's, I'm lucky, I'm fortunate that the gun didn't go off, right? Um, but... Um, you know, I think that, you know, you always got to hit that rock bottom, you know. I think that, and that was, for me, that was it. That was the rock bottom. And, it, you know, it, it changed it. And, I mean, again, I just want to stress this as much as I can, because believe me, I, I hear from people, especially from veterans, that are that are walking this line, man. <clears throat> They're walking this line. And if you're walking that line... Hold it. Yeah, listen. 
it's not worth it. I mean, it's not like, you know, I had to change. Honestly, I had to change the way that I looked at life. It, the only problem there was is me. You know, instead of just facing it and saying, hey, look, I want to fix this problem, I was blaming everybody else for my problems. And what I had to do was I had to say, you know, okay, if, you know, if the things that I've seen were so bad, I've seen what freedom cost firsthand. That's what's got me there. So if anything, I have more reason than anybody else on the face of this planet to go out and make the most of my life because I've seen it firsthand of what it cost. So instead of walking around and feeling like, you know, I, I'm not feeling sorry for my teammates because they're in a better place. They don't feel anymore. I'm really just feeling sorry for myself. And then by doing that, I'm sac- I'm wasting the sacrifices that they made on my behalf. And I had to change the way I looked at it. Instead of using it as my excuse, I had to use it as my fuel. And that's a choice. That is a conscious choice you wake up every day and you decide how you look at the situation you decide what you do with it you decide whether you use it as your excuse to hold you back or you use it as your easy you know valve of of hiding who you are or you use it as your fuel to go out and be the best that you can be you decide that nobody does nobody else does you do every day and it is a conscious choice i mean i still deal with it but i still make the choice that's awesome. That, 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 that's awesome. And anybody that's listening, like I said, anybody that's listening, that's that's walking that line. Yeah. There you go. Make the right choice. Make the right choice. Make the choice. Make the right choice. And you know what the right choice is. Yeah. And I mean, you, you're talking about how much and, and, and I feel this, too, like every day. How much am I letting down my friends that didn't come home if I'm not? doing everything I can to take advantage of the gift they gave me to be sitting here right now. Right. I mean, I mean, I, 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 any day that I don't want to go on and push on for myself, I can look down and I, I'll bet you anything. I got four reasons right here that would switch me one day. They would switch me my worst day to have one more day. You know, and, and, and I just... You know, I'm not okay with letting their sacrifices be wasted. I'm not okay with watching anybody else waste them. So why would I be okay with letting myself waste them? Well. Another thing I want to say is like walking that line. I want to say this and get it out there. It's normal. It's normal. It doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't. I, I want to get that that stigma out there. Uh, you know, I want to get that off the books. Is it's it is a normal. Like I don't understand why why it's okay in our society or in in the military. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> a guy breaks his leg. Okay, do, do you go get make him run tomorrow? <laughs> he puts a cast on it. He 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 rehabs it. It's the same thing with the mind. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. You go in and you watch. It, the, the people you have to worry about are the ones that go watch their close friends and they watch human beings and they watch this evil and people die and suffer. 
and don't have a reaction. Those are the ones you have to worry about. It is a normal reaction to a not normal situation. And it's okay. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It is 110% okay. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. As you, we mentioned quickly, you know, there was some buzz possibly about about you getting the Medal of Honor. Yeah. And. But you know how it goes. Like, it was all, I didn't believe it. I never, I never had any idea. Uh, you know, you hear talk about it, Silver Star, Medal of Honor, Navy Cross, whatever, right? I didn't care. I didn't care. I, I, I promised the last thing that I ever thought about was an award. An award. That's the last thing. Well, it gets approved. And going back to the book, when the president hung that medal around my neck, I felt glum. I couldn't smile, and I said nothing. I gave no remarks and avoided the press. As a Marine, you either bring your team home alive or you die trying. My country was recognizing me for being a failure and for the worst day of my life. The Marine Commandant General Jim Amos and General jo- Joseph Dunford attended the ceremony. Throughout the years after Ganjagal, the Marine Corps leadership has provided con- consistent support, not just to me, but to all who fought there. The top enlisted man in the Marine Corps, Sergeant Major Mike Barrett, twice came to our farm to meet my dad and granddad and to encourage me. There's no such thing as a former Marine. 50 years after they have left active duty, Marines still sign emails to each other with SF, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. Of course, we have among us those who fail themselves, their family, and society. The fact remains, though, that the Corps expects every Marine to live by a set of core values. In turn, the Corps keeps its side of the bargain. You cannot ask anything more of an organization than that. The Medal of Honor, given in the name of the Congress of the United States of America, symbolizes the courage and determination of our entire country. And speaking of the country you were in, New York. I was in New York City at the Twin Towers site, Ground Zero, with Gunny Joshua Peterson, someone I knew from my first days in the Corps. We were greeted by hundreds of police, firemen, construction workers, Wall Street guys in suits, city officials, and the families of the fallen. Meyer, I can't believe this scene, Gunny Peterson said. Make sure your ribbons are squared away. We stood side by side. Two grunts and sharply ironed khakis waving like we had won an election. I thought of my sad, fumbling meetings with the family of Team Monty, the families of Team Monty, when I couldn't think of much to say. I was alive and their loved ones were not. Now here I was, standing before a monument for 3,000 dead. 
I saw some big iron workers in hard hats standing off to one side. When the ceremony ended, they sneaked me in onto a work elevator. Up we went to the top of the ride, where we then climbed wooden ladders until we couldn't go any further. And there weren't any guardrails. I stood there, looking out at the most beautiful country in the world, trying to make sense of my feelings. This was where it had all started. So many good people lost, the people who had been working here, and the people I had known who had not gone blindly into uniform. They had reasoned why Americans do that. But they had gone ahead to do and to die. An iron worker handed me a silver marker. And I wrote on a girder for those who gave all. For those who gave all. And that wraps up the book and you know you're talking about awards and what you hear and what happens and all that and, and I wanted to say this as well on the battlefield on that battlefield and on every battle there are acts of extreme valor that no one will ever know about I'm talking about an infinite number. No one's ever going to know about them. And it's important to know this, that our military men and women don't do what they do for medals or ribbons. They do what they do because they love freedom, because they love America, because they love their comrades in arms. And that right there is why our country thrives in battle. Not because of technological advances, not because of superior weaponry, not even the size of our military. It's because of the bond that is shared between warriors that is our real strength. And Dakota, that's something that you represent in spades. And you know, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sh sharing this incredible story. And, and I know it's not only a story of you, but it's a story of all the men, American and Afghan as well, that rode into battle with you that day and showed once again what it is that makes America a place of, of hope and of freedom. It's because of... It's because of men, it's because of individual men that in their heart and even in the face of death actually live, actually live the ideals of this great nation. Not only in their words, but in their actions, in the way that they live and in the way 
that they die. God bless all. They're incredible. You know, I, I mean, you're exactly right. Like, I mean, there's so many stories that are, I mean, people have done so many stories of people doing such incredible stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's literally out of the love of another human being. It's literally out of the love of making the world a better place. That's really, that's really all we do. It's all we do. I mean, we join. Nobody joins, okay, to go just shoot people or fight. They literally join to, to try to make the world around them a better place. Whether it's passing out aid, whether it's rendering aid to a civilian or to a, a, you know, a fellow American, or whether it's taking out the bully that's inflicting fear in that place. Everything that we do is to try to make the world just a little bit better. That's it. You know, as, as I was reading about when, when you got back to your team, you could see, I mean, just from the way the guys were laid out, yeah. you know, Staff Sergeant was trying to get comms and trying to pass grids, and Doc was working on the boss. I mean, everyone was trying to make things happen, and who knows what those moments were like, you know, but there's moments of, there's, there's heroism there that we're never going to know about. Uh, no, I mean... I mean, 100%. I mean, Doc Layton was rendering aid, you know. What stopped him was, because Fazel was with him. What stopped him of getting to the road was Lieutenant Johnson got hit. And uh, Gunny Kenefick and Gunny Johnson were on either side providing security while Doc Layton worked on him. And that was the medevac we heard called in from Gunny Kenefick was trying to call that medevac in for Lieutenant Johnson. Man. And, um, you know, but they weren't going to, they weren't going to leave him behind. Even more, even more of not leaving him behind. They weren't going to just throw him over his shoulder and get him out. They were going to try to fix him. I mean, what do you say? I mean, what do you say? I mean, you know, that right there. I mean, that right there is everything. I mean, you take that, you take, I mean, there's so many actions. I mean, I've watched people do such incredible things, such incredible things that just make what I do. I mean, nah, you know, no, makes me look like I, you know, I've done nothing. I've, I've seen it. You know, people are incredible. Well, again, man, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Oh, thank you on on the podcast and hanging out and being out there and kicking ass and talking smack to people I like that too <laughs> uh, <clears throat> did I miss anything anything else no no I mean you I think I think you covered it all I think we might have covered I think some you got subjects it. I think you got, I, I, uh, I think you covered it you know echo Yes. You you got any questions for the man over there? 
No, usually I come up with some lighthearted question, but man, I'm out of words to be honest with you. We took that little uh, break, yeah. And Echo's like, "Man, he's like, I just keep. He's like, I, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, this really happened, man. And I'm like, yeah. I told, I gave, I give Echo heads up sometimes. You know, I say, hey, man, it's gonna be heavy one or whatever. And I was like, told him this afternoon, I'm like, hey, man, it's gonna be a heavy one. You know, stand by. And you know we're downstairs when we were taking that break, and he's like, "Man, all this really happened." I said, "Yeah." And you know who it happened to? The guy we're sitting in the room with and his friends. Like that's what happened. So, uh, you know, I, it, early on when I started this podcast, I'd be reading a book from night from World War One, yeah, or I'd be reading a book from World War Two or Vietnam or whatever, and I'd, I'd like. After about, I don't know how many podcasts, but like seven or eight podcasts, I was like, "Hey, I just want to stop for a second and remind everybody that the the, the the characters that I'm talking about in these books, these characters, they're not characters in a movie. They're they're people. They're they're humans. And this stuff that we're talking about really happened to these people. So." Again, it, it's obviously having you sitting here and I was talking to you about when when Colonel William Reeder was in here and You know, you're like re- you're reading stuff that happened to him. He was tortured. He was mock executions. He had he had He was locked in a bamboo a two-foot-tall bamboo cage in the jungles in Vietnam And he's got his legs in shackles and the he's trying to sleep and he's getting woken up by the rats that are eating the wounds in his legs and it's like that that's just inconceivable yeah i mean and it happened yeah i mean and that's you know i hear stories like that and it's just you know that's real people yeah these are real people just like us yeah and and and, and honestly man i mean i'm sure you saw me like sometimes I, you know, I'm yeah, I'm getting I get emotional when I read your story, but why do I get emotional when I read your stories cuz I'm thinking of everything I've been through, I'm thinking of my yeah. my friends and I'm just like it's man, you know, it's uh it's real. And and for those of you people that um, are listening to this and I talked to I addressed like the veterans out there a bunch today. Um but you know, to those of you that didn't have the opportunity to serve for whatever reason, you know. If I could relate something to you, it's like, yeah, these these people, these lieutenants, these sergeants, these staff sergeants, man, they're people, man. They're yeah. people. Yeah, they're just they're just people. Yep, they're just people. I mean, that's they're just people. They're just, and, and you know, and I think that that's kind of what makes it hard for society of, is that they see so many of these movies and they read these books and, you know, they read it, but what they don't understand is that somebody lived it, you, you know, and I think that that's a perspective that you, you always have to remind yourself of is that, yeah, you're reading it and, but somebody lived it, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> then you kind of see, you know, on the news, like, oh, yeah, the, the Medal of Honor ceremony and the pictures, you know, of you yeah. getting the, And, you know, you see the president putting it on. It's like, wow, that's so great or whatever. And 
what you don't, what we don't see, you know, people who haven't served, um, is like what really happened to 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 arrive at that one quote unquote glorious moment where you get yeah. the medal. Oh my gosh, thank you. Let's go party or so. I don't know yeah. something. You know, oh, yeah. like it's just it's like dang, bro. Did yeah, people think it's just so great, you know, and uh, like I I despise everything that medal stands for. For me, you know, I mean, not anybody else, <clears throat> but I, you know, when I put that medal around my neck, to me, it's literally, here's the stamp to show the world how bad I failed. Here's the, you know, um, that's why I don't, I don't wear it. I don't, I don't wear it because. You know, it's the worst day of my life. And uh, I lost everything that day. I lost not just my team. I lost my career in the Marine Corps. I mean, everything that I wanted to be was gone within one day. And, you know, and then I get recognized for it. You know, so not only do you have to live with it, but now you have to live with it in the face of the nation. Well, from that perspective, from from my perspective, looking at that, for one thing, the the medal. Yeah, I mean it was put around your neck, but I believe that medal represents everyone that was with your team. Yeah, and you might have gotten the the, the medal put around your neck, but it's it represents that story is going to be told over and over again. And your name might be at the top of the list, but every name is going to be on that list. Everyone's going to know. And I, I mean, obviously, I can't imagine the burden that comes with that medal that you live with. But at the same time, being able to have that, have your brothers remembered, I think that it makes it worthwhile. And, and, you know, and that, and that's the piece of it. You're right. I mean, so on the selfish, you know, when I, what I just said was on the selfish side of it, right. That, that, that is for me. Um, that, that is the only reason I did accept the medal was because I want my teammates to live on forever. I want people to know who they were because the day that I stop speaking their name is the day they truly die. And I have an obligation that as long as I can still breathe, that their names are still need to be told. And um, so that's what that medal allows me to do. Mm-hmm. And it is their medal. I mean, it's it's for them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it, you don't, it's just, it goes against, you know, and I think the one thing, you know, that, that's so hard for us to wrap around is how many times in your training did you, how many times did you set like when you were training guys and this and that? How many times did you ever set them up for when they did everything that they could? They failed. Hey, to be honest with you, when I was running training, I did that all the time. Yeah, I, I'm not kidding. I mean, you can talk to anybody that went through training when I ran it. It was it was just mayhem, and it was yeah. you were gonna you know you were gonna carry out bodies. You you had sixteen guys in a platoon. You were going to be carrying six bodies yeah. out, 
and you're going to be carrying them for four kilometers to a helicopter extract, which wasn't going to show up, and you're going to have to go another six. It w- it was brutal. Yeah. And there was times there was times where I'd kill every single you know training. I'd kill every single seal because they were not doing what they were supposed to do, or they were making mistakes, or the leadership wasn't stepping up. I did that all the time. Yeah. I did it all the time. I mean, I can't. I, I came back from Ramadi, where where my guys were in some really bad situations, and I wanted everyone to be ready for that, man. Yeah. And like that was, it was. I mean, I was not. I mean, I I came back from deployment and got put put in charge of training. It was awesome. It was the best thing that I ever could have done for me. And and I I thought it was the best thing I could do for my teammates yeah. was to be like, okay, we're gonna make this training hard, really hard. And and so, probably not. You probably thought I was gonna say never, but man, when yeah, I was running well, training, and 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 that's, and that's, that's awesome. I and mean, I had guy. I mean, I had many guys that came back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and and would say like, yeah, hey man, we got we got hammered hard in this situation, and we were ready. Nothing as bad as your no, no. situation, but yeah. But the mentality of it is. You know, there are some situations you're not going to win. There are some situations where you show up and you're not going to win. And that's against everything that we believe and everything that we're taught. You, you know what I mean? That that if we do our job and we do it right and you still lose, it doesn't make sense. Well, that's, that's something I've told many guys is, man, you you can do everything right you can make no mistakes and you can still get killed you can still you can still things you know there's decisions that you make on the battlefield you say if you say okay go left you can go left and everyone could be great and it's the best decision ever you could say go left and everyone could die and it's the worst decision ever there's there's things that you can't control inside of combat so you prepare and train as hard as you can and and the other thing you do is you get the leadership in the situation a mentality that they're not going to put themselves. This is like if my guys planned something that was stupid, I'd let them execute. I mean, this is in training. Yeah. If, the, if they came up with a dumb plan, they were going to execute that plan. I wasn't going to stop them, and they were going to get slaughtered. So they'd learn some lessons. But uh, that's why that training is so important, and it's important in everything. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on, brother. I think so much, man. It's <laughs> awesome. You're the man. <laughs> yeah, right. I do not accept that from you. <laughs> you are the man. All right, Echo. Yes. Talk about something <laughs> good. Sure. Chill. Cruise a little bit. Okay. What do you mean? Okay. So, so we'll shift gears. Kind of a rough transition. And I'll let I you know. know that we're like three hours plus right now. So you could talk yes. quickly if you want. If I want. Please. Mm-hmm. See how I kind of recommend that. Well, I feel like me and. Dakota, we have some catching up to do. You guys have been talking, so, you know, I might drag this out a little bit. No. Okay, so, Origin Maine. This is where you get Jocko supplements, krill oil, joint warfare. It's for your joints. It's for your joints. Yes. Important supplement. Yes. Important supplement. Yeah. Also, he has one called Discipline. It's a cognitive and physical enhancement supplement. Pre-workout, pre-mission. That's what it's called. It's a good one. Also at Origin Maine. It's OriginMaine.com. Maine, the state. Not like the main uh, one. It's yeah, main yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, you got geese on there for jujitsu. You train jujitsu, right? I do. Yeah. So if you get the Origin Gi, 
Those are all made in America. Everything in origin. All, all we made best in America. get you an origin geese since yeah. they are made in America, and you yeah. gotta represent some hey, American. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah, from the threads, from the cotton. By the way, they grow the cotton in America, not the kind they import the the fabric really? and we assemble them. Yeah, everything from seed. What is it? From seeds to from seed from dirt to shirt to shirt dirt to shirt dirt to shirt. Pretty good, right? Yeah, it was good. I liked it. Uh, they got some rash guards on there. Spats. Yeah. He spats, doesn't know what spats are. You, you, you know what spats are? No. Yeah, we didn't really either. We had to kind of We had to research there. it. Arrived at spats. Here's they're, the bottom line. They're spandex pants. They're spandex. They're tights, basically. Okay. Compression but, gear. Wait, do, you, where, do, you train at, do you train at 10th Planet? Uh, Jiu-jitsu? I, yeah, some. Not, Sometimes. Not so you've seen dudes down there playing with... Yeah, 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 I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. 10th Planet's all about them. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're all up oh, on the spats. Yeah. They're all about the spats. I was worried about... Compression. I was worried about using the word spats because I didn't... I, it sounded like maybe it was some kind of like... Yeah. Let's just say it, sounds, it sounded kind of girlish, like yeah. some girl... Like like a girl would be like, oh, I'm like going to wear... Like I'm You gonna, thought they were spanks. What are those? Because it sounds like spanks. I don't know. What's something that? girls wear, Yeah, right? spanks are real tight. Like the... Like it's... It's kind of like it's a, essentially compression gear. It is. It's compression oh, gear. Like, yeah. like oh, so. Like to I to compress. Yeah. To, yeah. <laughs> okay. To compress. They, so they, they should down. be. They should be illegal. I figured out somebody. <laughs> they should be illegal because it's like selling. Oh, it's a, it's false it's advertising. False yeah, advertising. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I I was on. We were on like some kind of live broadcast, and someone spats is comes from what soldiers, cavalry soldiers in World War One wore like leggings and they were called spats and i was like okay yeah. it's cool we'll we'll say it now yeah i like they, it yeah. they weren't really even leggings. they're just they, it's like this lower you know that lower part that covers the yeah, boot yeah. yeah it's that yeah it's Wait, straight up that is not spats that's something else what are those things called did you ever do honor guard you had to wear those things no i think they were actually called leggings wait so <laughs> we're so we're unclear no, about we, what no spats i know are what spats are i mean i am i'm unclear yeah, very unclear <laughs> well because in football you tape your shoe and your yeah yeah Ankle, oh, yeah. that spat. So I just, you know, I'm I just, like it. Hey, you know what? It works. Way. It works. It does, right? Yeah. See. Knows. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, Origin has some spats, some compression gear, rash guards. Yeah. It's, it's all made in America. Good stuff. OriginMade.com. Go on there, check out all their stuff. If you like something, get something. Also, for the kettlebells that I have, you train it on it. Planet, yeah, on it. You know the kettlebells, primal bells. Yeah, got the whole set. Yeah, he's very yeah. proud of that. Whatever you see, the Primal, smile on his face. You know, you he was like, "Yeah, you know, dang, that's solid." You, you know, Primal Swolger. No. Oh What's yeah. That? What What's is that? that? Primal what? Swol Swolger. 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 <laughs> yeah. Follow, yeah, you gotta check him out. Yeah, he, yeah. he works out down and on it. Like he's a big kettlebell guy. Oh, okay. Uh, Boom. Yeah. Swolger. Sounds appealing to me. Swolger. Swolger. Okay. Swolger. Boom. So he. Yeah. So anyway, onit.com slash Jocko. That's where you get the kettlebells. You want to get the whole set like me. Or, you know, or other stuff. Like I said, um, if you actually, I said this before, you want to vary up your workout, make it more interesting. Jocko likes boring workouts. That's cool too. But if you want to make it more interesting, get the mace, get, you know, some oh, yeah. of these, some more, uh, what do you call it? Like more creative. Yeah, the mace. Fitness yeah, uh, yeah. The, equipment. Yeah. On it.com slash Jocko. It's a good spot. Also, when you buy the book into the fire. Dakota Meyer. Don't worry. I got it listed on our website, jockopodcast.com, by episode, by the way, along with all the books that we go over on this podcast. Boom, just click through there. Take it to Amazon, shop. Continue doing shopping if you want. Good way to support. 
also. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. I just Spotify. learned. I just learned what Spotify was today. Me too. I'm not even no, 100 well, sure I know what it is. Yeah, yeah. it's some I kind of music ambiguous. feed thing. Yeah. But we're on it. Yeah, I, I, we're also I, on Alexa. You, do you have Alexa? Never heard of her. Okay. <laughs> well, it's she, Amazon she's Echo. My, oh, well, you can ask it to play Jocko Podcast. Yeah. No yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to buy one just yeah. for that. Yeah. You can just be like, Alexa, play Jocko Podcast. Yeah. And then it says, playing the latest episode of Jocko Podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's and you dumb. go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. so cool. And you always say, do you have Alexa? That's like saying, hey, do you have, or you should go buy a Siri. You can't buy Siri. Siri comes with no. your, your phone. No, no, no. It's no. Exactly. You can buy Alexa. No, yes. you cannot buy an Alexa. You buy an Amazon no, Echo. It's no one tube. calls it that, though. No one yeah. talks about that. Yeah. Maybe they should because that's the correct thing. We don't want to confuse people. No, the only one that's confused you do here confuse, is you. No, no, no. You do want to confuse no. people. We're talking about Alexa. <laughs> I know that. I, I'm trying to educate. <laughs> All right, if you're going to dig okay, in on this, I'm going to let it go. It's Amazon Echo. Believe me, I know. It's a tube. An intelligent tool. Why does it have to, to be Amazon? all about you? Bro. Yeah. yeah, that's what it comes down oh, to. Right. It's, oh, he's right. mad. Okay. It's not okay. his name. All right. All right. He's, uh, that's what it is. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. good. Look, look how happy Jocko, Jocko is. Give him a little love. Give him a little love. Look how happy he is. Get that Amazon Echo. Yeah, yeah. let's just get that Echo. And then you ask Alexa. So essentially, Alexa's in the what Amazon if I Echo. Ask e- what if I wanted to ask Echo? It won't It won't respond. Uh, you can call me up whenever I'll respond. <laughs> Amazon Echo will not respond to the name Echo. Okay. Alexa lives in Amazon Echo. Oh. Just like Siri lives in your iPhone. There's nothing living in my iPhone. It's a machine. It's, a, it's artificial uh, life. Go. Intelligence. Nonetheless, <laughs> subscribe. If you haven't already, also subscribe subscribe to YouTube. We'll have the video version of this podcast and excerpts on there as well. And enhanced excerpts as well. If you're into that, subscribe YouTube if you're into YouTube. Also, Jocko has a store. It's Boom. called Jocko Store. Mm-hmm. Just like it's called Jocko Podcast. Jocko Store because it's a store. I like it. It's just called Jocko. I yeah. like it. I'm not that creative. If I had, if yeah, I had, a, if I had a badass name like Jocko, <laughs> dude, your name is Dakota. Come on, I man. I know everybody thinks it's like a girl though. Oh, really? Yeah, is like, that a girl's name Dakota? Yeah, Dakota Fanning. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, I, like I pick up the phone and they're like, uh, "Ma'am," and I'm like, uh, "No." <laughs> I didn't even know there was a girl's name <laughs> Dakota. Yeah. Well, yeah. sorry, man. That sucks. Are you like a girl named Sue? Is that why you turned out so badass? Be- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. Like Johnny but Cash. Yeah, I, there you go. I kind of feel like when it came down for, to Jocko to name his own store and stuff, he was all cool. But when Amazon names their thing Echo, it's like, you know, you guys kind of uh, yeah, turned see? on me a little bit. See? It's messed up. No, no I, I was on your team. No, no, he you kind of called dude. me out, remember? <laughs> so you, at that moment. Nonetheless, hey, man, I dig it. Either way, jockostore.com. This is where you can get shirts, discipline equals freedom, good shirt, the good shirt. And when I say the good shirt, it's the shirt with Jocko's head on it. It says good backwards. So when you look in the mirror, he's telling you good, you know. I like that. It's pretty good, I'm right? going to get one. I'm going to get one. Yeah, I'll get, I got you. you. I got you one, too. You're too nice. I got you, too. Alexa will take care of you. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, jockstore.com, there's some rash guards on, on there, some hoodies, some hats, patches. I got to restock the patches. I restocked everything on there. Got the patches. Yeah. Hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm trying over here. Um, women and there's stuff a on there system well. in place now to restock automatically. Am I correct? Uh, well. Okay, I'm not correct. 
Okay. Uh, Forget it. It depends on what you mean by automatically. I just mean things will be in stock from now on. More, That's what I mean. We'll just say more often. Bro. We'll just say better. <laughs> you, know. you had one Big, job. <laughs> you had one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know what? Forget it. We're Actually, not. he's got two jobs. Make videos and keep the store stocked. Yeah. How's he doing? Well, oh, for two? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? You guys having, uh, you guys having fun there? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Jocklestore.com. That's, that's, that's the website. Anyway. I'm not saying go buy something. I'm saying look, check it out. If you want something, get something. Good way to support. Also, good way to support psychological warfare. Support yourself. You know, in your campaign, we call it a campaign against weakness. Makes sense. Yeah, right? I like it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it, we liked it too. So it was suggested to us. Um, you know those days where you kind of don't feel like it, right? And who better to ask for a little assist on those days than Jocko, right? In theory, good theory, right? (laughs) I mean, I agree. So, boom, now we have this album with tracks, Jocko tracks, telling you to get how to get past moments of weakness that may come up. Waking up early, skipping workouts, you know, diet stuff, all that. Um, Works pretty good. That's badass. 10 for 10 results. You'll never skip a workout. I'm not joking. Echo was like, ask me. Asked me a question one time, like, why do you not skip? How do you not skip workouts? And I was like, oh, I just boom, boom, boom. Yeah, when you don't feel like yeah. it. Yeah. And he's like, dude, I need to record that. And then he just like asked me a bunch of random questions. And then we made it into a re- recording and we put it on iTunes for sale. It was the number one spoken word on iTunes for, I think, I think until your book, I think came 11 out. months. Finally got knocked out of number one spoken word by when I released this book, Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual, on iTunes as a spoken word album. So I'm just saying, it's like so random. Very effective. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not him saying, raw, raw, do this. It's not No, no, I just talk. I'm not a yeller. (coughs) Yeah, you don't seem like a yeller. You don't have to yell. No. Yeah. You don't have to I used to tell the guys, hey, I mean, obviously, you got to yell on the battlefield and you got to yell people so they can hear you. That's one thing. But yeah, I mean, I always used to tell guys, if you have to yell at someone, man, you've really screwed something up as a leader. (laughs) You know, if I got to yell at you, or if if I got to be like, yeah. Yeah. Nonetheless, it's, uh, yeah, very effective. Like, if you, he'll be like, uh, there's this one called Sugar Coated Lies. Right. And it's about, like, you know how, like, when you're at work, you were talking about the good video. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. So this is the same thing, but it's like a track you can get. You can get actually this. The Discipline Goes Freedom Field Manual album has good on there as a track. Just a track. Boom. There you go. Oh, really? So you can put it in your whatever. Yeah. You can set. So and because I had people going, you should make an alarm clock. You should make an alarm clock. So when you did the album with tracks, and we, you could use that thing as an alarm clock. So when people yeah, ask when me for alarm clock, it. I'm like, go get the albums. There's three albums now. Yeah. By the way, three albums. Yeah. Wow. Psychological Warfare, and this one is in two different albums. You really only need the first album of Discipline Goes Freedom Field Manual. For Mostly. the for the audio, yeah, you can get yeah, well. There's there's well, if you want the knowledge parts, yeah. that's yeah. that's the second video, the second the yeah. second album. Yeah, you right. didn't know I was over here. So this is where this is where Echo started hammer hammer me because you know when they list you, they list like psychological warfare, and then they have to list who made it, and it was artist, artist Jocko Willing. <laughs> and I was like, no, the artist. No, no, no. I'm not an artist. <laughs> I just put, I'm just speaking. I'm just saying words. That's not art. No, it's like no, no, no. You're an artist. Yeah, so full on artist. artist. I didn't know so you didn't know that, man. Yeah, I never. I never. I, art I, I, I promise. There. I never. I never looked at you and said, "Wow." Yeah, I don't come across. Look like, at the artist. That's some artist, artsy guy. Nonetheless, that's very effective. Very effective. Very effective. Good way to support too. By the way, check also on Amazon mm-hmm. through 
Alexa, if you want, you can order Jocko White tea. Amazon Echo. And, and, and by the way, I don't know if, I'll give you some Jocko White tea. And the reason I'll give it to you isn't, I don't care if you like tea, you might, not, you might hate tea. But what this tea does is it's guaranteed, it's guaranteed to give you an 8,000 pound deadlift. It's scientifically proven over yeah. and over again. Double, double blind, blind, double triple. blind, placebo tested right there. Jocko White T, 8,000 pound deadlift. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you got that. Yeah, also, perfect. books, the books, um, yes, Get Into the Fire by Dakota Meyer and Bing West. Get it through our website. It's it's an awesome read, man. We, we I covered less than 10% of the book today. You only understand 10% of what the whole situation was by listening to this podcast get the book support the podcast support Dakota learn about what these brave Americans and Afghans went through yeah. way the warrior kid there's a book I wrote for kids why cuz who's what kind of kids what kind of books were kids reading I know cuz I got four kids my kids were reading books about lame people that were yeah. being encouraged to be weak yeah. Instead of like, hey, you know what? It's okay to actually get after it and try and be smarter and try and be stronger. So if you want your kid to be smarter and stronger and eat healthier and work harder, if that's what you want, get the kid way of the warrior kid. If you want to make your child weak and undisciplined, that's cool. You can buy any other book for a kid and that's what you get. And that book did good. Uh, with people and I wrote another one it's called way of the warrior kid Two. it's called Mark's mission and it's got a whole new genre of issues that Mark has to face with his uncle Jake uncle Jake comes to help out young Mark would you call them more advanced issues they are slightly more advanced That's let me tell you which one of them one of the one of the issues that young Mark's of Mark's in sixth grade now in book two he he loses his temper sometimes and he gets in trouble at school for hucking a paper mache pumpkin at another kid's head and it deflects off his head and hits the teacher in the face. Oh man. He gets he gets sent home from school last day of school. Anyways, he has to learn to control his temper. Just yeah. like all kids do. And I know this because I got kids. And I know this because I was a kid. And you remember when you were a little kid and you lose your temper and you do yeah. dumb stuff? Even when, and when I say little kid, I'm talking like 23 years old. <laughs> yeah. I was like, <laughs> sure. I was like, say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. You I, know what I, I'm I, talking <laughs> about. Don't worry, I got you. Get you a copy. <laughs> Uh, his uncle in the book is a, is a seal, or was a seal, and he comes to stay with him for the summer and helps him square away these little problems. I he's like got. it. Yeah, yeah. So that's what that one's about. He also learns about working hard. He gets a job, starts a business. He's eleven years old, has his own business, mowing lawns and pulling weeds. That's way the warrior kid, and way the warrior kid too. Mark's mission. Uh, you can also get. Speaking of which, warrior kids. From Irish Oaks Ranch, there's a young warrior kid, 12 years old, business owner. He makes soap from goat milk right here in California on his farm. Yeah, that's cool. Well, yeah, well, it's, it seems like, well, how are you, ta- how, how does you even, why are you talking about this? He got in touch with me and said, I want to make good soap, Jocko soap. Jocko soap. And I was like, well, who are you? He's like, I'm a 12-year-old kid named Aiden. I live on a farm. I'm starting a business. I figure you might want in on the action, Jocko. And I was like, 
hey, you know what, dude? I'm in. <laughs> Let's do you, this. Make you some might, soap. You, you might want in on the action. He offered me a piece of the action. I was like, oh, I guess I'm in, man. Warrior kid getting after it. Sure. And so, yeah, you can order that soap at Irish Oaks Ranch. He's dot com. It's, you know, no big deal. Soap Empire, right? What yes. is, like, Johnson & Johnson probably started off making soap. Ivory soap. You think ivory soap doesn't yeah. have some good profitability? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and the only difference is well. the only difference is this kid's starting at twelve. Yeah. You guarantee Johnson yeah. Johnson didn't start at twelve. No, no. no this no, kid no. started at twelve. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Get on there. Dude, Just have, order some of it. He'll have the kinks worked out before he can <laughs> even drive. Yeah, yeah. He's all over it. I mean yeah. he'll, I mean I'm telling he's, you. He's manufacturing soap. Yep. Think up. about when you were. Tw- I'm, I'm. I mean, yeah. let's just let's just get all of our own. I don't even loser. know about let's our own loser, <laughs> Our own loser selves out on the table here. What were you doing when you were twelve? Yeah. Right. I was like smearing boogers on my sister's. I was like, still door. eating dirt. You know what I'm saying? I was yeah. still eating dirt. We're just talking losers. I mean, I was eating dirt. Yeah. I didn't know what soap was. <laughs> like I was still. Yeah. I'm you, I was eating dirt. Dang. Yeah. I I made up the slogan too. Simple slogan. Simple yeah, yeah, slogan, yeah, yeah. and it's it's actually a great slogan. You know what it is, Jocko Stope, stay clean. Oh, man. <laughs> you gotta admit it, man. I mean, you gotta admit it. I gotta tell you, you gotta admit it. It's a good slogan. The good slogan. Stay I, clean. I don't know. I don't know how you came up with that. <laughs> I'm telling you, Jocko Soap, stay uh, clean, right? Yeah. Man, same Think way he came that. up with Jocko Store. Yeah, Jocko Store. Uh, real, I'm real creative when it comes to them them names. Uh, also, hey, another book, Discipline Equals Freedom, Field Manual. If you need to get on the path, stay on the path, be on the path, move further down the path. If you're having trouble getting after it in life, get the book, Discipline Equals Freedom, Field Manual. And then, don't just get the book and read it. You have to actually do something that's in it. But it's pretty clear, it's a field manual. Echo claims to know all about field manuals. My favorite kind of manual. Yeah, you actually know about field manuals. <laughs> so it's a field manual that tells you how to get after it, so you can do that. The audio version of that is not on Audible. You can't find it there. Why? Because you couldn't cut it up into tracks, which is what you all asked for. It is on Amazon Music, Google Play, iTunes as an MP3. Also, Extreme Ownership. The book that Leif Babin and I wrote, it's about combat leadership. Some of the, actually every topic that we talked about today when it came to leadership and organizational issues, it's all, it's all things that are inside extreme ownership. Get that, and it's not just about war, but it's about life, it's about business. And on top of that, we have a leadership and management consulting company. It's called Echelon Front. We solve problems through leadership. Every problem that any organization has can be solved through one thing and one thing only leadership that's it so if you got problems call us echelon front me Leif Babin JP Dinell Dave Burke echelonfront.com of course also we have the muster it's a leadership gathering it's a leadership gathering seminar conference gathering and that's what we do we we get together we have all kinds of leaders come we present we talk about issues we give pragmatic actual tactics and techniques on how to lead people 
If you want to like come to a conference and get all happy and clappy and make hugging promises to the guy that's sitting next to you, don't come to this conference. That's not what this conference is. We're not singing and dancing at all. No. We talk about we talk about how to lead. That's what it is. So if you want to learn how to lead, come to the to the muster. There's only two of them in 2018. Only two of them. One of them Washington DC, May 17th and 18th. One of them San Francisco, October 17th and 18th. That's it. We're not going to what's the name of your hometown? Columbia, Kentucky. We're not going to Columbia, <laughs> Kentucky for Why? the muster. Why not? We couldn't we find a, we couldn't we couldn't your barn wasn't big enough to hold it in. <laughs> we can we expand it? Yeah, I'll, I'll work on it for next year. Work on it. Uh, we actually did one in Austin. If I'd known you at the time, you would have been there. Yeah, that'd um, be awesome. And let me know if you want to come to one of these. We're, but we're not doing it in Columbia, Kentucky. Oh wow. We're, we're not doing it in what's another random place? Omao, Kauai, Hawaii. We're not doing it in Hawaii. If you want to come, you got to come to one of those two. Register oh, by the way. They've all sold out. We've done four of them. They've all sold out. This one's gonna sell out to register extremeownership.com and we Okay, we raise the prices Once we hit a certain date. Why do we do that? Why do we raise the prices once we hit a certain date to make more money? No, no I'm just kidding <laughs> No, we actually don't want people to do that because what the reason we do is we, we want to incentivize people to register early so that we can block enough room order enough food plan plan correctly get the venue set up the right way so we, we're trying to make people come early so we it's actually a pen we're penalizing you yeah, yeah. for being slow for, for procrastinating yes procrastination you're gonna pay that's right oh it's a procrastination penalty I like where you're yeah, coming from yeah, that's good that's <laughs> if you wait you pay I'll take credit for that we like people that get after don't it. don't put that as one of Jocko's okay <laughs> okay you'll get credit you'll get credit I think well you'll get a percentage because you were running off my lead and I get a little cut <laughs> I like it <laughs> all right so that is that and until the muster if you have questions or feedback for us we are we are ready to receive on the interwebs on Twitter on Instagram and on dash Facebook echo is at echo Charles and I am at Jocko Willink and Dakota is on the interwebs in a big way in a big way on Twitter at Dakota underscore Meyer that's how we linked up by the way via Twitter it is. That it is. Like cool. I can't believe you responded to me. It's so cool. And I'm like, I can't believe you said something <laughs> to me. <laughs> Couple of little kids on Instagram, <laughs> Dakota Meyer, O three seventeen, sniper. No, just O three seventeen, Dakota Meyer. That's that's Instagram on Facebook. Sergeant Dakota Meyer. You can just look Dakota Meyer, and it pops right up because you're kind of the man. You have yeah, a podcast. Yeah, yeah. I do. You have your own podcast. It's called owning it. Owning it, with Dakota Meyer. Now you you kind of took that from my book, Extreme Ownership. No big deal. I did take a little slice of that. That's cool. <laughs> you have DakotaMeyer.com is another place. So like I said, that's why I said you're all over the interwebs because clearly you are all over the interwebs. You got a YouTube channel. Yeah, I got a YouTube channel. What's that called? Uh, it's it's just Dakota Meyer. So I've got the YouTube channel just Dakota Meyer. Where my podcast goes up, it's on Own the Dash. Uh, Own the Dash. What does that mean? Uh, so, you know, Own the Dash comes from a poem Linda Ellis had wrote called The Dash. And, uh, you know, I, I, felt like, I felt like people in America just needed something to hold on to. And, uh, you know, so I, I always look at what is success and how do I want to be remembered. And that's kind of like a big thing for me. And I, uh, 
So Linda Ellis wrote in her poem and talked about how, like, at a funeral, you know, a man stood to speak and he referred to the dates, you know, on the tombstone from the beginning, you know, with the, the date the, the, the person was born and the day he died. And really those are the two only two days in your life that you don't make any decisions or have any control of. <laughs> and everything else, what matters is that dash in between. And so how are you going to own your dash? How, what is your dash going to look like? Because you can control that. You can control what that dash looks like, how, you know, how fulfilling it is, how selfish it is, how giving it is. I mean, you control it by your decisions every single day. And what do you want your dash to look like? How do you want to be remembered? Because it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how whatever you did, the empires you built, what matters is how you changed people's lives. And that's how you're remembered. And where your true success, in my mind, is you'll be defined, will be what people say about you at your funeral. And so that's where it comes to me is, is own the dash. That's where the idea of it came from. So own your dash, you know. And you do public speaking as well? I do. I do public speaking. I go around and do. You get in there and talk to businesses and teams. Yeah, you know, I come in, talk to businesses, teams, give my leadership principles of, you know, what I believe to make success. You know, I'm, listen, I'm simple though, um, but you know what what I feel like, you know, my life. I, I talk about my story and kind of what happened to me, and then I come around and I, what does that mean to me, right? What does that mean? Like, you know, every story without uh, every story or experience that you go through that doesn't have a meaning afterwards is a wasted experience. And uh, so I talk about that and I just, you know, do a lot of, do a lot of public speaking, trying to, I just want to inspire people. I'm like, I just, I, you know, I just want to, honestly, I just want to change the world. No big deal. Just want to change the world. That's it. No, I just want to change the world. Awesome, man. That's it. Awesome. Any, did I, did I miss anything else? No, I don't think so. I think that's, I think that's everything. Um, yeah. Anything, any other projects, anything else everybody needs to know about? No. No, listen, I can't I can't tell you how much I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's an honor to have you on. Echo, you got anything else? No, thank you very much for thank coming you. on. Thank you. Closing thoughts, Dakota. You know, listen, it's, uh, I, I, I got a lot out of this podcast. I got a lot of, uh, you know, just hearing your perspective and, you know, uh, I just I, I just want people out there to know that, you know, I'm no different than anybody else. The only difference is the opportunities that's been put in front of me. And, um, you know, I appreciate you having me on. Well, man, it's, it's obviously an honor to have you on. Um, thank you for your, thank you for your service, uh, both in the Marine Corps and what you continue to do now to try and help people and, and just change the world, which is what you're trying to do now, which is awesome. And, it's been a true honor to have you on again, you. you know, to be sitting across the table from you and knowing what you've been through and to see where you are now is, is awesome. And it's, it's my honor to be sitting here. And of course, to all the service men and women on the battlefields around the world doing what must be done to protect us. Thanks to all of you. And finally, to those service members that made the ultimate sacrifice, who gave the last full measure for us. Thank you. May you 
rest in peace and know without question that we will never forget and until next time this is Dakota Meyer and Echo and Jocko out